2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: Chase Thomas Podcast, the Chase Thomas Podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate I already hate it. I hate it.
2: All right. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, queen to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Everything School HQ down there in. Tequila, Georgia, my good friend from the University of North Georgia alumni Matt Green is here. Matt, good evening, sir. How are you? Good
3: evening, sir. I'm uh I'm doing great. You know, per usual, uh just watching the Georgia Bulldogs win uh win a college basketball game, you know, now 12 and 3 on the season. Hashtag everything school HQ.
2: I'm going to go ahead and pull up where their Ken Palm is at the moment because they hey, haven't played the anybody. The bracketology,
3: uh, not Joe Lenardi, but uh, Andy Katz, bracketologies came out. He had Georgia first four out. So, you know, here's that's, the thing. That's a win right there. They're They're moving in the right direction.
2: Here's the thing they are 71st in kempom at 12 and 3. Uh their strength of schedule is let's pull this up. 134th in the country. They are Hey, it's um, baby steps,
3: man. This was, okay. this team's been in like 14th place in the SEC, 13th a couple years here recently. It's Well,
2: Tennessee will be there on Saturday. So, you'll get the
3: you'll get the necessary There you go. Big-time atmosphere in Stegman Coliseum on Saturday. You going? We were thinking about it. I don't know. We'll see. You should do it. It's holiday weekend, three day weekend. Oh, it should be. I don't. It's not three day weekend for me.
2: Oh, do you not get Monday off?
3: No. Mm. I get Monday. The company off. doesn't care about MLK. What? Are you, what are you going to do? Good. It's, it's, sh- it's a. It's damn shame. Wow. Um. Well, Matt Green, this is
2: uh a crazy time because we're like seven hours removed from um Nick like, Saban just casually like it just a casual tweet uh from chris love espn uh he's retired and then i love the second sentence of like he is a six-time national champion at the uh, university of Alabama. it was just kind of funny it's like yeah we, we, we we're familiar uh with the the great nick saban but um and just like that it's over it uh nick saban out the door we wondered i wondered before the season on this very show um and had that you didn't my...
3: wonder sir yeah you called it you also called eight and four and you were way off on your eight. Not and eight four and four. They're very close
2: to eight and four. We've <laughs> yeah. said this multiple
3: they times. Way so way I'm 11 not and one and made the it. Mm-hmm. Your eight and four was way off, but your half of the other half of your prediction was that Nick Saban retires. And I gotta give you some credit with that. Like you could get that right. You could be guessing that for the last few years, every year, and eventually you're gonna get it right, but you uh this is the first time you've you've uh made that prediction. So that was uh I'll give you credit there. But the eight and four, no, I gotta hold you to your eight and four. That was uh I was with you that I thought it was gonna be a bad year, but I wasn't ready to go eight and four. I don't um, know. I still think
2: they were closer to eight and four. They than were definitely still
3: one. we were definitely wrong on the Alabama Crimson tide and they uh they found a way to get to the playoff. But but yeah, man, it's the end of an era. Like Nick Saban, it's like I try to tell uh Tori all the time. That like they weren't always this like I, like this is legit. Saban is just is he's the greatest coach of all time. Like they, the most of my childhood, Alabama was obviously a big brand, but they were never like the best team in the country. I think they, mm. they won in ninety two. I don't remember that, but um they were just they they, they made some terrible coaching hires there in the early two thousands, but. They threw a bunch of money at Nick Saban and it uh definitely paid off. This is why people throw a bunch of money at, at dudes because sometimes it pans out like Nick Saban. I got I got a couple stats for you mm. right here. So he's uh 297, 71, and one in his career. At Alabama, 206 and 29, and eight 87.7 winning percentage. Average season at, at Alabama was 12.1 and 1.7 losses on a season. Like they're ba- basically averaging playing 14 games a year. Like that's just that 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 alone it's up there like you look at what Bear Bryant did at, at his time in Alabama and he's like god status, you know, like the fact that anyone could ever be better at Alabama than Bear Bryant is just pretty insane and and, and you look at Bear Bryant's 22 32 46 and 9 like even Saban had a higher winning percentage than Bear Bryant. Like it's it's pretty absurd, and it just, man, it's about to shake. Like this this coaching carousel is just about to go crazy because some one of the big time coaches in college football is going to be getting this job, and it's just it's going to start a domino effect all over college football.
2: I I don't know. It seems like uh, Josh Pate of Late Kick was uh, saying the search is already rounding third base on tonight's show and you look at where this search might be going and i was thinking about like okay in terms of possibilities and i've i've said on this show and to people uh over the years of like dion always made the most sense to me it's like they're close they did the commercials together um he was always just like he would be one because i think part of this job because it you're following the greatest college football coach of all time you have to have an ego You have to have this ability not to crumble um, when you're falling. Because the problem with taking this job now is you're going to be worse at this than Nick Saban. There's no way around it. Like, you're going to be worse. You're going to win less titles. You're going to have a worse tenure at the University of Alabama. That's just how it is. Like, fans are not going to be happy with you for the majority of your time there. And you could win some. It just doesn't matter because you're following the greatest college football coach of all time and the level yeah, you of winning. Can
3: guarantee that the next guy's not going to win a championship.
2: Not I'm not saying that. I'm saying like you're going into every year expecting like you're you're fielding potentially the best roster in the sport. You're probably not going to recruit just as well as Nick Saban did over the years. And part of that is just NIL and the transfer portal and everything else. It's just really hard to have a dominant dynasty now. Like Nick Saban is I mean, this Alabama dynasty is probably it for those kind of dynasties in college. Well, just with the 12 team playoff, with the portal, with us going to a model where so many of these Big Ten and um, SEC schools have like, I was looking at, I think it it wasn't Bud Elliott, but somebody else was putting up uh, the recruiting numbers for this, uh, this most recent class and how many of the blue chippers wound up at either the Big Ten or the SEC and almost all the five stars and a cornucopia of the four stars. Wound up at those two conferences, and then the couple of uh, just kind of uh, mi- uh, not misnomers, the outliers is like Florida State, Miami, and one other school uh, that I'm blanking on right now. But it's like by and large, you just don't have the juice in the other conference to make a real run. And the thing is, these other schools that Bama used to dominate, especially in recruiting, guess what? Oregon or Ole Miss, they're killing in the portal. Uh, A&M, they're way up than what they used to be. Texas, obviously back. Um, You look across the board. I mean, it's just Michigan is getting a lot of guys in the South. They're recruiting well. Ohio State's in your backyard all the time getting great players. It's just really, really hard to... You didn't even mention Georgia. Georgia. Well, Georgia's already implied. Like, Georgia's <laughs> right there. Like, that's, I don't need to say, hey, folks, you hear about this? Do you see this? Georgia might be
3: uh, throwing. Well, because a... I think that's kind of what started, not to say the downfall of Alabama, but them not no longer being just this absolute head and shoulders juggernaut was Georgia actually, abs- actually like balancing out the talent a little bit. Yeah. And Alabama not just getting everyone they want.
2: No, but I mean, it's just, he's the greatest coach of all time. I don't know. I mean, you can make the case that did they have the most dominant team ever in 2020 um, that we've seen in college football where you win every game by 70 plus points. And it was an all sec schedule and they just were never tested. And they had so many NFL players from that team and everything else. But like, um Saban they checked every like box. It out twelve
3: nominee. individual awards. It was yeah. like they swept like the offensive like best <laughs> receiver, best running back, mm-hmm. best offensive lineman, best quarterback. It was insane.
2: They lost their wide receiver, their best, their Heisman favorite, and Jalen Waddle in the middle of the year, and got better. And then
3: Donovan Smith just ended up winning different. In sec- Donovan Donovan. Yeah. Uh, or you said Donovan, Sm- Demont. Wait, Demonte Smith. Excuse me. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, I was like you're saying his name wrong, and now I'm blanking on what his mm-hmm. name is. Right. Uh, yeah jalen Waddell was legit their best wide receiver like the first half of that season and then a different receiver wins the heisman yeah that, that team was was stupid loaded but but yeah i mean in just the early years of the state, the three championships in four years like in 2009 11 and 12 it's just like you're never gonna see that level of dominance ever again and and it, and you've seen like how many teams have like you said how many teams have gotten it right or uh, how many programs have gotten it right immediately after following the legend like you saw uh steve spurrier you go ron zook afterward you know like phil fulmer is even one that was like kind of forced out so it's not like he he retired they uh, did he retire or was he, he was he was fired right i mean
2: yeah no it was a forced out it wasn't a retirement
3: yeah now. and so it's like they didn't they didn't they had lane kiffin for like a mm-hmm. year or two that obviously had or just one year right just one that year. had its whole that's a whole other story but but yeah it's like like a Lloyd Carr or somebody that that's a, a long-term guy that, that, that retires and, and you get rich rod and, and Michigan football has never been the same until until Harbaugh got there. But um yeah, I mean, there's just a Jim Trestle to urban Meyer. I guess that's, that's an upgrade right there. I don't know if he, I don't know if he retired or if he was fired Actually he was probably fired, right? Trestle by the end of it, a little Trestle scandal. was fired. Yeah. So that, 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 that's a little bit of a different situation, but you, you have this all time great coach and, and he's, he might not be, I don't even know who followed Woody Hayes. That's probably the better example. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be tough for Alabama to, as tough as it's going to be. And I've seen all these tweets, like I think Stuart Mandel and people like that, like you're, you're a, a insane. If you're the guy that's going to follow Nick Saban, just stay where you are and just win your games and let your school be happy. Like that's because you're Stuart Mandel. No disrespect, Stuart Mandel. Like you don't play the game. You don't, you don't, you're not, you're not in it. Like these guys are, these are some big time dudes and they know they're wired different than me and you, right? We're like, Hey, Dan Lanning, just stay at Oregon. You got a good thing going, man. Don't go mm. to Alabama. And he's like, no, I can win anywhere. I'm, and I'm as know. good as coaches as there is. Cause he's wired different than me and you. So somebody's going, someone big time is going to, to take that Alabama job, but yeah, it's obviously going to be hard to fill saving shoes.
2: Yeah, and I mean, maybe it is landing. And he was uh, an assistant there for, I think, only a year at Alabama. But um, obviously a great pedigree, a lot of success right away at Oregon, great D.C. at UGA. It would be kind of cool. Like, you've already got Kirby over there. So you have the Kirby versus Dan, the protege versus the the guy now, um, and Kirby and Dan. And I think Dan will be successful wherever he goes. But I was also thinking about this. Uh, Their AD um, is his two hires at Alabama. One, Nate Oates from Buffalo, so not a, a local guy, and who he just hired for baseball because uh, there was a whole scandal with their baseball team, if you remember last year, and he gets fired middle of the year. And they go with, not the interim, who actually guided them and kept the Bama baseball team moving and uh, was a favorite to keep the job. And most thought that uh, he would end up just getting the job full-time They go Maryland, so I look at this and I like that's that's stuff I I stash away because the AD obviously is a big part of this and like everyone's immediate gut reaction was Kiffin like that's what you see like it's been reported that he's always wanted this job this and the other I've said on this show I think Kiffin's final move in college football is LSU he just feels like that being the that being it for him and then him uh, riding off into the sunset. I just think he knows he can win at LSU. I think he knows that it's not much of a, a shift from Old Miss to LSU. Um, I don't think he like, – Isn't Alabama, old Miss Alabama, like the exact It's same different, day? though, because you can win at LSU and you don't follow Saban. Like, and you can get a lot of the same kind of players. You can just – I don't know. I, I My gut tells me LSU is his final play. But that's
3: the thing about following Saban.
2: The cupboard is full.
3: Like this might not be
2: – Hold on. Like, we don't know that in the portal era. Like, we have I no mean, idea how many guys – because you have a 30-day window the right
3: now. But the foundation of Alabama is a hell of a lot better than any other program you could possibly take over right now. Like, Alabama is just – I think Georgia's actually in a better spot to take over, but yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably true. But I'm just, I'm just saying, in terms of the jobs that are going to be open, like – like out there, you, there's not going to be a better situation. Like, this team is going to be ready to win now. Like, yeah. obviously, you're, it's going to come with expectations to win now. And that's what's going to make the job tough. But there's a lot of benefits to that job. Uh, but so, my biggest question is this Who can Alabama not get that's a current college football coach? Because I think that list is two, maybe three people long. And I think it's Kirby Smart, Jim Harbaugh and maybe Steve Sarkeesian, like just because he's at Texas and they're just a huge brand. And he just started having success of his own and got to the playoff on his own. Like he doesn't need necessarily need to upgrade to Alabama. You know what I mean? So outside of that, I don't see one coach in college football that if Alabama wanted him, they couldn't get him. Oh, Kirby smart. I only need to get Kirby right now. No, that's what I'm saying. That's the yeah. list. Kirby smart, Jim Harbaugh, and maybe Steve Sarkeesian. I think after that, think every single Sark, um, I think every single coach for, after that is, is, is theirs if they want them. That's a good question. Um, well, I
2: mean, you gotta remember ties to like the, like a lot of places people are coaching at their school. I don't know if Hypel would do it. Like, I don't know if
3: Hypo would take Bama. If, if Alabama came knocking, I think Josh Hypel's bouncing. Yeah. Honestly, I don't know.
2: That's a good question. I'm not really sure. Um, who all, I mean, also, I mean, I don't know if Troy Calhoun at Air Force is signing up for that. I think he's got a good thing. I don't think he wants to run his <laughs> offense. at.
3: Uh, I think if Alabama Tuscaloosa. wants to, I think, I think uh he can, Alabama can pay a couple more dollars than, uh than Air Force. I, I just, do you want that if you're Troy Calhoun? What a conversation we're having about the Alabama. Yeah, let's <laughs> keep it, let's um, keep it
2: moving. So, and shout out to Troy Calhoun. Great coach. I love it. Uh, so I'm sure he's doing a great job. He is doing a great job. I have his helmet. They send me a helmet. No, shout out to Air Force. Um, no, I I don't think it's going to be Dion. now that it's going through. But I think about this AD, and I don't think it's going to be Lanning either. Like, I think it's just too obvious now, and there's just been too much plain plain talk um, where he is. And Richard Johnson of SI just reported that uh, he was told, or he had a source or something, that Lanning was in Eugene as of this afternoon. So... I don't know. Cause like Oregon's a good job and he's got a great class coming in right here. They could, they're going to be right there in the CFP uh, going into next year. And I think they're going to be, I mean, I think you make the case. They're the favorites to win the big 10 next year. Um, Do you think he would, he would turn down Alabama to stay at Oregon? I don't know. The buyout's huge. His buyout's the biggest of all their targets. I think they re his contract got restructured or something where his buyout's like 20 mil um, to get him out of Oregon. So I think he would be the most expensive pull. Alabama if I have that right um, I think actually That's it's another team I detail. think I might turn t- my guts telling me because this is the other part of it is like you made a point about Alabama just being not too big to fail but they have this great infrastructure right like Nick Saban built this 20-year juggernaut they have the most amount of blue chippers ever in uh, this year it's at least
3: better than almost everybody right He's built a great
2: infrastructure. They have a great NIL collective, this, that, and the other. Great recruiting area. Bama's got a great legacy. Dudes in the league, What this, that, and the other. However, Bama's made bad hires. Like, Shula was a bad hire. Um, the price, My obviously. Price. Bad hire. Like, this is a program that it's not like they're bulletproof. It's not like it's just been nothing but national titles and this, that, and the other. Like, this is... It's a it's a risk like they are now in a shaky spot because there are no guarantees he is going to make the right hire here. There is no guarantees that you're just going to be able to keep this train moving the same way that Saban did. And that this next hire like the Alabama is what you've come to know uh, and expect from Alabama over the last 20 years. Saban made it look a lot easier. I'm certain than it actually is going to be for the next University of Alabama football coach to keep this thing humming. Both recruiting on the field with the collective, the buy-in across the administration, all that—I keeping donors happy, keeping boosters happy, keeping players happy, um, getting the same amount of dudes in the league. This, that, and the other. I think it's just—it's it, going to be so much more complicated. And they are coaching searches can get weird. Coaching searches can politics can be in play. Like. Auburn found a way to just like you're seeing right now. Ryan Williams is probably going to end up at Auburn. They're going to have multiple five stars in this class, just receivers alone. Hugh Freeze built a just a juggernaut already with his staff. Auburn, it shouldn't be that hard for them to be good, and they still hired Brian Harson and like they still were just wandering the Alabama They're desert.
3: Tumors corner tonight. Did you yeah. see that?
2: But what I'm saying is like they it these schools make it a lot harder. We saw Florida. We know you mentioned Florida, and after Spurrier. After Urban Meyer, you think like, OK, well, Florida is back there and they're in good shape. They'll figure it. They'll be fine. Like Urban Meyer showed that Florida is good. And the, like this and the other, they'll be OK. No, like the next person who follows Dabo at Clemson, it, you're going to be like, wow, Dabo. What? He was able to do something that it, he made it look a lot easier than it actually is to make this because you remember what Clemson was before Dabo. They were never uh, the national title juggernaut that he developed them to be over almost a decade I think when I think about Alabama, the people who are just penciling in that this is just going to be a seamless transition, they're going to get whoever they want, and they're just going to keep this thing humming, I'm not so certain of that. It's always a risk in these coaching searches, there's always a lot of moving parts, but I also think, I don't think it's going to be a Southern guy, I don't think it's going to be a Kiffin, I don't think it's going to be someone from the SEC, my gut tells me it's not Lanning, it's not going to be um, uh, Dion. It's going to be a Big Ten coach, but I don't think it's the one that people think. I think it's going to be Kalen DeBoer at Washington. There's a reason Ryan Grubb, the OC at Washington, was like Saban's first target um, this offseason to be his next OC. I don't... My gut tells me they're going to go outside the box here. And Kalen DeBoer, you know how I feel about him on this program. Great coach, just wins <laughs> wherever he goes. I mean, it's not Brian Harson, but it could be one of those things where like, Look at Washington's recruiting numbers right now. Look at what they're doing. He's not a great recruiter. He's winning with... I mean, Michael Penix, obviously he had history at Indiana. But all those receivers, that defensive line, that offensive line, those were Jimmy Lake guys. Those were who was an ace recruiter at Washington. Peterson before him. I don't know what it looks like when he's not recruiting at close to the same level that Nick Saban was. I think it's going to be a weird hire. And I'm not sure... Like, I like Kalen DeBoer a lot. I would encourage Kalen DeBoer to stay at Washington, but I understand it's, like, generational money Uh, going to Alabama, and that's just an opportunity of a lifetime. But I don't know. That's my gut. I think it's going to be a weird hire like that.
3: How dare you even put Brian Harsin's name in the same conversation as Kalen DeBoer? It's just... No, hold on, guy, Brian Harson
2: was a great coach before he got to Auburn. Great coach,
3: he was. He was doing fine at Boise State. Like Brian this was in, a good coach. he the Pac-12. He's like what, like twenty-four and like three or something. In the he's in the eighty-five last and thirty-six as a head coach, and that's with the Auburn stuff.
2: He was yeah, sixty-nine
3: that's... and nineteen
2: at Boise. He only lost eight conference games in seven years. That's fine. He didn't it's lose a conference game it's the last Boise two years. State. He was there
3: it's not Washington. It's not doing it. I'm PAC not 12, disagreeing, but hold on. Let's just not make it seem
2: like right. Brian Harson can't coach college football. Like the dude's good. He just picked a bad fit in Auburn. Like it was just a bad culture fit, but no, the no. guys can still coach. He can coach ball.
3: No, that's fine. I just, regardless, like obviously it's, it's tough to make a hire, but the guy that's taking over this program, like I don't think anyone thinks it's going to be seamless because you're not going to, uh, you're not going to ha- be as good as Nick Saban, but this this program that is being inherited is probably the best program any coach has inherit just inherited like over the last i don't know decades yeah like no no one has just retired and left a program in this good a shape so yeah. while it's gonna be tough for the the first guy he's he's gonna have a lot to work with right off the bat so
2: i'll ask you this Matt Green. who do you who is who would be your favorite hire just as like take off your Georgia fandom, like your favorite Bama that you're like, this would be the most interesting. I I would like to see them do this the most. And then who would you be most fearful of them hiring as a Georgia fan? Like who would be like, Oh, this is, this is a great hire and they're going to be
3: awesome. Ooh, that's a good question. So let me keep my Georgia hat on for like (laughs) one second. And I, Dan Lanning is the last person I would want to go to Alabama because I feel like I have a soft spot for Oregon right now. Hmm. But if Dan Lanning goes to Alabama, I'm like, nah, fuck this guy. Yeah. So, so that's that's what the Georgia hat on. But I think Dan Lanning feels like the logical, most logical, just from like you know, just like it, from a casual perspective, that he has some sort of Alabama roots. And he's been in the SEC. I said Glenn Schumann a couple, like maybe a year or so ago, but it's just. I just can't see like maybe if Georgia won three straight national championships or something, it was a little more high, like high profile. But I just I can't see Alabama going in and the the guy that's never coached at all, even if he did graduate from Alabama. And he's got he's got some of that because I think there's something to the alma mater aspect to it with Jim Harbaugh winning a national championship and Kirby winning a national championship at Georgia. I think a lot of people want to do stuff like that. D'Amico Ryans at Houston Texans, like a dark horse that maybe they'd throw a bunch of money. But I mean, this is a guy who's been an NFL assistant for years. So it's just a matter if he'd rather coach in the NFL or coach in college, which most people probably rather coach in the NFL these days. Um, so that like that, that's kind of a dark horse, but um, you know, I think Lane Kiffin's a guy who makes a lot of sense. To me, Deion Sanders just doesn't make sense. Deion Sanders is just it feels like his biggest attribute is like his like showmanship and everything. So he seems like a guy that goes to like, I don't know if he ever goes to Miami because he's a Florida state guy. And I just don't know if he can do that. But Miami is the kind of place somewhere who needs to be like resurrected, but like mm. does have a national championship ceiling type of thing. You know what I mean? And Deion Sanders, like he can show up and make them relevant again and start to get legit five stars and stuff like that. Alabama's just not that situation. You almost want a guy that can just keep the thing on the tracks, right? Like they're doing things, they're doing things perfectly in Alabama. Like you don't need to come in and start changing things up. So that's what makes you think it's probably, hopefully, going to be a guy that's been under Saban at some point you would think they would want to go. And I think that's what makes guys like Kiffin and Dan Lanning, uh, the most attractive, even though Lane Kiffin, it's such a brief time under Saban. He doesn't even feel like a Saban guy. Like Lanning feels like he's got the Saban mentality more and than he was Lane, there. Last Kiffin. Does. He's only there a year, but since he was under Kiffin and then under Kirby or, or under Saban and then under Kirby, he just feels like he has that mentality more than was he under to Norvell and, too at Memphis. Oh, that's probably right. Cause he was at Memphis before, before Georgia. So, yeah, I just, um, Kiffin, it seems like a whole nother direction. I don't, I don't hate Kalen DeBoer. Um, you throwing that out there, but that seems like a whole nother direction. I don't, I don't know if I can see them. I mean, he's obviously just in the national championship game, but that, that feels, that feels like doing something very different than what you're doing. And unlike this situation, like, Going from a Mark Rick to a Kirby Smart, we see uh, programs tend to want to. Oh, they had an offensive guy before. Let's go with a defensive guy, change things up because things aren't going well. But with Alabama, it seems like you try to get as much continuity as possible. And maybe Steve Sarkeesian, that's another guy that that's had some saving, uh, uh on his resume, for lack of a better term. Um, so. You know, maybe he's an option, but, but, but like I said, at, at Texas, you just made the 14 playoff. There's, there's really nothing as great as, as Nick Saban has made Alabama. There's nothing inherently better than Alabama than Texas at, at the end of the day. Like that was just Nick Saban is the greatest coach in the history of the sport. But at Texas, if you got things going right, you got to think your ceiling is as high as anyone in the country.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think so. I just, I also judge based on like how the fam, like who would be the most nervous. I'm like, oh, Kiffin, what? With- it- I think part of it is like, don't overthink the recruiting connections and don't overthink the area. Cause like that's what Freeze has just completely pounced on with his staff, with how he's recruited. Like there's just so much talent in this area um, that you got to have guys with connections and you've got to have just this relentless recruiting, just. like just know how like Kirby is relentless his staff is relentless he's hiring like when Fran Brown leaves guess what he goes and hires a great recruiter at USC to replace him like he understands that this the recruiting churn you just can never have enough high quality recruiting assistants Kalen DeBoer can coach football like Kalen DeBoer is a great coach Kalen DeBoer will not recruit at this level. They will not be 90% um, full of blue chippers. If Kalen DeBoer winds up at Washington, there's just going to be a disconnect. There's going to be he's going to bring a lot of his own guys. He's not going <laughs> to just surround it uh, with nothing but Alabama guys. And that's again, like I like Kalen DeBoer. I think he's a, an elite elite college football coach. I think it's a bad fit. And I, if it's something like that happens, I don't know. Landing, I think will be fine. Landing would be kind of scary at Alabama because I don't think it would be a dynasty type deal but I think they are going to keep that thing humming. He'll bring some Oregon guys who are just super talented and get a lot of those Alabama guys to stay who might be thinking like the Caleb Downs to the world. They're going to stay for a Dan landing. Like if you bring in Dan landing, I think you're going to be able to keep a lot of this group together, which is a little bit scary. You get the bore, you get one of these other outside the box guys, you run the risk of losing a lot. So I'm very curious how that goes with the, the nature of the portal and the 30 day window. These kids have, and then, you know, I think the two dark horses that, like, if I was a strong betting man, just to, like, throw 25 bucks on both of them, because I think they have a real shot, it would just be, like, catch some fans by surprise. But when you really think about it, you're like, that's not really a surprise at all. Mike Norvell, I think, ACC, you just have the best season you might ever be able to have at Florida State. Cash in that undefeated spot. The ACC is getting left behind more and more. You look at just how... um just <laughs> this thing is humming with this conference. You're going to continue to fall behind at Florida State in the the money category, not being in the SEC and Big Ten right now. You might not be able to get out of the grant of rights uh, for another decade. We'll see how that goes. It's Alabama. You jump at it, you take it, and you, Bama, it's a safe hire. We know he can coach, and you know Bama will be good. Like, they'll keep it humming, and I think that's a pretty safe one, and I think that's like, man, that's, that's just solid. Mike Norvell is just going to be really good at Bama. The other one that I think might turn more SEC heads, and I don't know if you share this, Matt Green, but I think it'd actually be pretty defensible. It's Marcus Freeman at Notre Dame. Because you don't know what Notre Dame's future is like as an independent and where they wind up and stuff like that. That Brian Kelly got tired of? Hey, there's only so much I can do at Notre Dame before I just reach the point where I just have to acknowledge that I can't win a title at Notre Dame. Marcus Freeman, it's not like he's a Notre Dame lifer. He played football at Ohio State. He understands the recruiting aspect of it. He's recruiting really well at Notre Dame. Bama, like, it's not like Saban, obviously, Michigan State and other stuff. It's not like he was just in uh, West Virginia. Like, he was all over the place. It's not like these deep southern ties. Marcus Freeman, I think, would recruit at a pretty strong top three, top two level consistently. Not as experienced as a lot of the other names coming in. But, I mean, almost ten wins both in his first two seasons been a great DC years prior I think he would be a strong recruiter I think he would I mean he just pulled LSU's offensive coordinator um who just put together a a season for Jaden Daniels where he won the Heisman he'd probably bring him in so I think the offense would be just moving in the right direction I think he'd be able to keep a lot of those guys it might raise some eyebrows from people in the south and everything else and Bama fans are like really we're gonna get the Notre Dame guy I could see Marcus Freeman working and actually being really good. He's a sneaky, scary one to me because I think if you give him Alabama's resources and just kind of his rise and when you listen to his interviews and stuff like that, you're like, he might be a younger Dan Lanning. Like there's some Dan Lanning parallels with him and what he's doing at Notre Dame that I don't know. I think that's another one I would throw some money on.
3: I'm still not sold on how good of a coach Marcus Freeman is personally, but I mean, I think there's a lot of guys that could succeed at Alabama because I think Alabama's got a lot going for it. So yeah, I mean, that wouldn't shock me. I think when you're comparing the two, it seems like in the small sample size, like Lanning feels a lot more proven to this point than Marcus Freeman and maybe Oregon. And and especially you compare those two guys too, like they both didn't exactly inherit rebuilds. So Mm. They both inherited really good programs, and I would argue that no, uh, Marcus Freeman inherited a better program and has done worse in his two years uh, there. So I, I think if I was Alabama, the number one guy on my list would be Dan Lanning. Hmm. Okay,
2: we'll end on this because the, the hire might happen um, over the next 24 hours. We can see how we're feeling all this. Your final prediction. He didn't even throw out Dabo Swinney. I don't think it's. They're protesting the students. <laughs> you see that at the no. the memorial or the the oatmeal cream pie uh, memorial for Nick Saban and his statue, where they they put a bunch, which I love, that they just put a bunch of oatmeal cream pies and a lot of uh, Coach Saban's <laughs> favorites over there. So shout out to the students. He didn't on die. That. Yeah, it, it, it's <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the Bama's dynasty did. Um, but. Was already dead. Some some knew it was already dead, but we mm. keep going. Well, they were basically saying like not anybody but Dabo. Was that uh, nobody at Alabama wants Dabo, and I don't think Dabo. Man, like, that's
3: tough. That's your
2: alma mater, man. People just—he's a divisive figure, and I look. Like, it works at Clemson, but my theory on Dabo has always been like he. I don't think he jumps. I think he just retires. Like once he leaves Clemson, it's over. He's not dealing with the portal. He he's not dealing, He's not starting over somewhere else. That man is getting out uh my guess is uh because he definitely isn't doing an nfl locker room and all that like that man is not making the jump to the nfl so i think it's clemson and then he rides he hates off Heats players sunset. getting paid yeah like i just i don't i don't see that going well um so your final prediction though matt green who do you think it is
3: um i feel like if i gotta predict I, I guess I'm gonna go with landing. I think that's the buyout. You know, money. You find the money. If 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 it's a money's no object at uh at Alabama. So I don't know. I think that's that's the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, is Alabama definitely a better job than than Oregon in your opinion? Is Alabama a better job than Oregon right now today? Yeah. Like, if you're Dan Lanning, if you, like if you're if you haven't been at Oregon, if you're just anywhere and you can just choose to go to Alabama or Oregon, then you probably choose Alabama. But if you're all, is it worth starting over and following a guy like Nick Saban to jump to Alabama? That's the question. It's a question he has to answer.
2: I'm gonna say, I also love that Pat Schumer has the six best odds to get this job.
3: I mean, Billy Napier was on on the betting odds. I don't know.
2: He's fourteen to one. Pat Schumer. Has better odds than Norvell, Ryan Day, Marcus Freeman, James Franklin. That's preposterous. Like that is, I, I just that that is what every SEC fan needs to be rooting for. Pat Schumer, Schumer would be just an unbelievable Shula price hire. Like he's an OC right now. He just got that, that that oh my goodness, that would be incredible. Um, but it's not gonna happen. I'm gonna say it's Kalen DeBoer is my final answer. Ooh.
3: I mean, I wouldn't hate it. I wish if Alabama had more continuity on the defensive side of the ball, like someone who'd kind of been there a while, like a Bud Foster type or something. You know, mm. it would be that would that would be a direction I would like to go in. Like someone who's just new age offense, and it's like just leave that defense alone and keep doing what you're doing. But like Kevin Steele, I don't know how long does he last anywhere. Like, is he even gonna be? Is he even gonna be around for the next guy? He I don't, already I don't retired. Really know. Kevin Steele retired a couple days ago. Oh, there you go. I was, uh, I missed that. So, Mm -hmm. so there you go. Um, So you're going to be finding a a new DC too. So shout out to if, if Kalen DeBoer gets the job, Ryan Grubb, like shout out to that dude for believing in himself, turning down the Alabama OC job, and then having this insane season with Washington. I imagine if Kalen DeBoer gets the job, Ryan Grubb is going to be the OC at Alabama, uh unless he finds a head coaching job of his own
2: speaking of washington um let's uh pivot here uh on this it's gonna be a shorter show with uh the saving stuff and college football uh now the regular season coming to and postseason coming to a close um mac green michigan blows out um washington as he texted me like oh second there's a whole second half and i'm like Dude, I'm just I'm on fire with my picks. I'm on fire with. I mean, that was a uh, close I'm calling game. Right I'm calling Nick Saban way. out because saying Saban was going to retire is my bold prediction before the year. Uh, getting the college ball playoff exactly right, getting the national title pick exactly right. Um, look, man, oh, I'm tired on, of winning. Oh when right, you're at everything school HQ, it just it rubs off on you sometimes, man.
3: Can I can I stop real quick? Yeah. I had one last Saban Saban uh mm-hmm. note here the worst season of Nick Saban's career was 10 and three mm-hmm. at Alabama. Other schools are building coffee table books for stuff like that. Okay. That's all I got to say.
2: Yeah. It's those days are I over, just, man.
3: It was a forced joke. I was just trying to throw a dig at, at Tennessee there. We can talk about the oh. championship game now. <laughs> okay. I didn't think that was necessary.
2: <laughs> uh, but Matt green. Can Georgia fans stop? Because the Georgia fans who came out immediately after Michigan stomped uh, Washington in the national title game, Georgia fans, man, I need you to be the Georgia fan police here, Matt Green, because they come out That's number fair. 2 S P S&P Plus. So, and I think everyone, rational college football fan would say the best two teams this year were Georgia and Michigan. I think most rational fans would say that. That being said, the instant reaction and seeing a lot of, I mean, even Georgia people that I respect being like oh this Georgia team would have blasted Michigan is absurd because I understand you saw the Orange Bowl and you remember what happened there two years ago completely different circumstance you were not blasting this Michigan defense no one was blasting this Michigan defense it's a close game it would have been fun to see but the instant reaction of like oh they would have been national titles if you national champions if you had just put them in because we were clearly better than the rest of these playoff teams I'm like what, did, what else did Michigan have to do? They beat Alabama, a team you lost to, the team you lost to a month prior that put you in the predicament that you're currently in. They played a close game against Alabama and won on a neutral site. You did not. You won two? Like, I understand. But to immediately disregard that and disregard all of what Michigan just did, an undefeated season, the number one scoring defense in the sport, running all over Washington... Uh, making Michael Penix's life a living hell uh, in this national title game. The only team to slow down Michael Penix all year long, really. I mean, I don't know.
3: It rubbed me the wrong way, Matt Green. No, Georgia fans have to, they have to calm down. I understand what you're saying, but two things can be true. So I think you could watch that college ball playoff, all three games played out of it, and sit there as a Georgia fan, like, man, Georgia was better than all four of these teams. Like, Georgia could have beaten all four of these teams. And I think, I think Georgia was better than all four of those teams. I think if on a new, you can't say they're better than Michigan, Michigan being the team that you lost to. I mean, I personally, no, no, no. I personally think they were better than Michigan, but that's what makes this season frustrating because you didn't take care of business and you didn't earn being in the college ball playoffs. So I I feel like it's like a closed door conversation. It's, Mm. it's talking with your buddy. That's a fellow fan. That's like, man, we're better than all of these teams. But you don't go to Twitter like <laughs> Georgia got hoes. They should. They're a top four team. It's like, I mean, in that regard, like I, I hate that the whole best four teams versus most deserving. I hate that Georgia is the only team that it ever applies to because <laughs> it, it happened back in 2018. And now in 2022, where I think most people thought Georgia was a top four team. Everyone pretty much thought they are a top four team. But I think we all know as a college football public, they were not a top 4 deserving team. And that's really they can say they don't pick it that way, but that is how they pick it and honestly it's how they should pick it. So Georgia didn't deserve to be in the college football in the college football playoff because they lost to Alabama in the SEC Championship. So that's full stop, right? That's the that's all that needs to be said, but you can still have the opinion that damn, I feel like this Georgia team could have beaten all these teams. And I think that's why that's why Michigan had a Georgia hour or whatever of their practice, all, Georgia session of their practice all offseason because that was the, the team that they knew stood in between them and a championship. And I think we were all sitting here as college football fans kind of feeling a little robbed that Georgia didn't take care of business and we didn't get what we felt like the number one and two teams in the country were. And not, not just to disrespect Washington like they didn't earn uh what they got but that should have been the rose bowl it would have been a great two three matchup but i really would have loved to see this michigan team go up against georgia
2: and that's a more rational way of framing it but the georgia fans who are tweeting at like under the national champion uh just celebrations like would have blasted both of these teams you are like all right man uh i just and the people after the day after of like that just proved that Georgia was the best team. It's like, that's what that proved. That's what you, you watch that game and you're just going to put that out there. And you're just like, yeah, Michigan asterisk title. Like we would have beat, but I'm like, Oh, yeah. Oh, that's some I, Alabama I stuff.
3: Making fun of Alabama fans for the yes. thing last year. So we got to keep in mind, Twitter's not a real place and there's a lot of dumb people. Everyone's opinion is not equal, but even but on I, radio,
2: I was listening. And I mean, I still check, I'm not going to say any names, but I'm people that I like and podcast. I'm like, are we doing this? Are we really Are, Georgia doesn't need this like Georgia. All they do is beat Bama and all yeah. this is solved. Michigan took this care was, of their job. Michigan won honest, all of their games.
3: I think this was the worst Alabama team probably since 2010. That 10 and three yeah. team we were talking about. And I, it was one of the more flawed teams. And like I said, Kirby smart one and five versus versus Nick Saban. It was the first time I was legitimately surprised. Like I, I was not expecting it. I thought Georgia was the better team all year. But they didn't get it done. They didn't make the playoff. It is what it is. Michigan and Washington both went undefeated, and they they deserved where they were. Do we are we digging into this game? Are we, let's yeah. I, I got a I couple because it's been a couple of days. So now that yeah. we've had Duff settle and Saban and everything
2: else, we're not going to do a deep dive. But yeah, uh, what do you got for me?
3: So I, I was just go, looking at Michigan. There's like this is like a great story. Like this is like some I don't know, like movie type stuff. But it's like it's it's there's a lot of poetic justice here so january 1st january 8th 2021 that was the day that jim harbaugh restructured his contract because to that point he was 49 and 22 at michigan winning 69 percent of his games for six years since that three years to the date he won that he won a national championship on january 8th The last three years he's 40 and three and michigan has just been a powerhouse so it's like it's just a perfect story in terms of like the the team that w- went undefeated, right? And then they got blasted when they got to the playoff, and then they went undefeated again. And they had uh, uh they got upset, but it was a, a track me like a classic game. And then they got back, went undefeated again, and then they they finally they had the seniors come back like Blake Corum, the Heisman finalist a year ago gets hurt at the end of the season, has a bad taste in his mouth comes back for his senior year just this loaded roster had a bunch of people come back and they just had everything and they won a national championship but then you have this cheating scandal and it's like you can't even feel good it's like there's so much like poetic justice happening and they're like, yeah but they also cheated I don't know how much we care about it, but it's nonetheless it, it's it's a great just like story of just a team that was kept knocking on the door and they eventually uh, and they eventually broke through. And there's something, like I said, that's just special about a guy winning at his alma mater like like Kirby has the past couple of years. And it's also
2: like, it inspired them, and you kind of wonder, like, do they make this run if it's not Michigan it's against the world? Because This pissed them all off, and it brought the coaching staff further together. It brought the players further together. It gave them that same thing, like that rat poison. I mean, Georgia had it, where it's like they thought we were going to go 7-5. and And it's like we all laugh from the outside. It's like, no one thought you were doing 7-5. And it worked internally, which is all that matters. It's motivating the guys in that locker room. That's all you have to worry about. And those Michigan players were motivated to win every game and prove week in, week out that those scandals did not uh mean anything uh on the field and that they were still the best team in the country with or without whatever you thought that was going on there like the it's just it's a great run um Harbaugh I think he's a quirky dude but the guy's just a winner man he wins everywhere like Harbaugh wins everywhere and to re- revitalize San Diego years and years ago to revitalize Stanford to uh get to the Super Bowl with San Francisco to I mean, turn Stanford
3: bit. into like a perennial like New Year's Six team.
2: Yeah, and again, we see now how hard that was. That's like one of those where he's gone, and David Shaw like was okay for a little bit, and then it got really bad, and now they're one of the worst teams in the back twelve. Now the ACC, which is weird, almost won a Super Bowl. Yeah, almost won a Super Bowl, and then he comes here and he, like you said, restructures the contract. It gets bad. Twenty twenty, they were awful. Were they two and four? Where it was like, yeah. oh, this is a this is over, and he's like, nah. Uh, Which we talked
3: about out. at the time was hilarious. It was just mm. like, you know, Jim, you haven't been coach. You've been underperforming, and he's like, mm. he's like, I have been underperforming. How about you pay me a little bit less? He's like, yeah, okay. We can agree on that. And it, I've never seen anything like it in a sports uh, contract. They didn't fire him. They just paid him a little less, and and he uh, he earned it. And he's, I think he's gonna p- get paid a little bit more now, or jump to the NFL. We'll see.
2: Who knows what he does, but he has all the leverage in the world. He wins wherever he goes, NFL, college. He makes it look e- easy. Um, I think it's a great story. I think Harbaugh is a great story. Um other than the cheating. I mean, I just ever like I just I'm not doing it. And uh <laughs> again, I will say there's a reason that there was a lot of big time programs and elite coaches that did not go after Jim Harbaugh publicly. Um all that being said, Michigan was the best team at the beginning of the year. They were the best team at the end. The stats bared that out. They were in the blue chip ratio. The trenches were awesome. They got to Michael Penix. They dominated on the on the offensive and defensive line. Edwards, those two big runs early. Quorum obviously ran the ball really well. J- Michigan, I think they ran for over 300 in this game total. There's yeah. zero times Michigan was going to lose a football game <laughs> when they run for 300 plus. Like that just means hey, you're this, having a tough day.
3: You're, you're framing this like this was
2: a blowout. Though. Oh, it was never like, close. Like the, after the first quarter it was over. This like, game was, was
3: a touchdown game for like no, two No, it never quarters. felt like it.
2: Do you see, like, they had like a 97... Pro- what was the win probability after those first two touchdowns? It was something crazy, because I was keeping up with that on I just,
3: I know defense obviously impacts the way an offense plays, but Washington mm. played outside of, I think it was the Arizona State game. This was the worst game, the worst performance from this Washington offense I've seen almost all year. Like, mm. Phoenix was definitely under pressure, like every single throw was off his back foot. Like it was insane the pressure he was under. But there were just so many missed opportunities. Like the the one in the second quarter, the fourth down where he had a Dunze wide open for what would have been like a 40 yard touchdown. And, and they missed they missed that one. The obviously the holding on the on the big uh on the the one big play they did have early in the fourth quarter. Like when that's still a touchdown game early in the fourth. I mean that's and that's the drive after uh they the running back just had an easy drop on a third down and short. So it's like they just as as poor as Pennix played. Like he missed so many throws, and obviously you you have to give Michigan a bunch of credit for that because he was under so much pressure. And I'm sure even when he wasn't, he was still feeling it just because he was under pressure most of the time. But uh, just with the way that Washington's are, and it's not like Texas's defense was just that terrible, and that's the only reason Washington played well like they've they've been doing this all season these receivers have been ballers all season and you just saw so many uncharacteristic drops so i hated that we didn't get really the best version of washington like obviously michigan contributed to that but i mean this washington defense doesn't really get enough credit like this thing was seven like like you said michigan ran for 300 and they ran for 303 yards on 38 carries on the first three drives of the game they had 10 carries for 184 yards. So, I mean, from the second quarter on, like final three quarters of the game, they're holding Michigan to four yards a carry. And, you know, that's not amazing, but it's it's not 18 yards a carry like it was in the first quarter. So I just, that they got, what was it, like five, six straight uh, drives where Michigan didn't score. Like Washington's defense did enough to win this game. And I feel like Michael Penix and these receivers, just missed a, a few opportunities. And I think this game really got away from, it. and then after that, I think it was the, what is the fourth down stop, or I can't remember the, in the fourth quarter. Um, and obviously the interception to start the second half was big, but once, once Michigan just kind of put the, put their foot on their throw, they, the, they just kind of dominated the, the the rest of the game.
2: Yeah. And I mean, this is another one, Matt green where luck people were getting a little worried about the, Blue chip ratio was Pennix gonna break the mode of first team to win a national title, not being in that top fifteen in the blue chip ratio. And Michael Penix was the kind of quarterback to maybe do that. And Michael Penix was awesome, but they did not. And Bud Elliott has this tweet. I don't know if you saw this a couple of days ago. Um, non blue chip ra- huh? But Elliot was sweating. I mean, he was he his
3: life by the blue chip ratio.
2: Hey, we love Bud Elliott on this program. Um non blue chip ratio teams who made the championship game playoff era. Oh and four. Losing by an average of twenty seven points, minus five, minus twenty-one, minus twenty two, and minus fifty-eight in those four losses. That's just what happened Wait, again.
3: You're saying 0 oh, and four, you're saying Washington's not a blue chip ratio team, right? Correct. Yeah. So all well, the war teams
2: have been in the national no 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 in, in the, the national, national, national Championship. title. Yeah.
3: Who are those teams?
2: Uh I don't know, but TCU is right, Oregon, is in there. maybe uh,
3: that first year. Who? Maybe Oregon, the first Probably, year of the playoff. Yeah. That
2: feels right, but yeah, all four teams um got smoked and uh, did not work in the national title game. It's just still the this trenches was, see, and that I depth.
3: Just, I I think you smoked, hate this. You hate the blue chip ratio. Smoked. I know I do. I think it's really overrated. The composite rankings and stuff like that. Obviously, you know who the teams have the best talent and and they're the best. That's essentially what what that thing is telling you. But I just disagree that they got smoked. Like they were about to get smoked in the first quarter. And then this game was going back and forth, and they were down like what? what let me. What is the box score? Like they were down twenty to, to thirteen at halftime, right? And it was. I mean, sure,
1: they couldn't run was, the ball.
2: Michigan ran for over three hundred yards. There was never a, a point after Michigan showed that they could
3: run whenever they wanted on Washington. It was over. I'm just saying, Washington scored to make it seventeen ten before the before the half, and. Mm-hmm this was a, a touchdown game going into the fourth quarter. Like the, it, they didn't get smoked. Michigan pulled away at the end, but I don't know. I just, I think that's, I guess I, maybe I'm just used to TCU, Georgia. That's the level I, I'm, I'm at. They didn't give me by 58 points, but I, I felt like Washington, this was a back and forth game for the majority of it until Michigan pulled away at the end.
2: That's fine. I don't know. I,
3: I, I got to give them credit. Like, I feel like they're getting disrespected.
2: It's not disrespected. I love Washington. They did a great job. I picked Michigan. I Look, Michigan, they established the run. They showed that they were going to be able to run on you. And, I mean, Michigan, though, what kind of was so disrespectful, too, when you think about it, guess how many Michigan, Uh, t- they were 0 for 1 on fourth down. How many third downs they converted in this game?
3: Oh, man, like three?
2: One. And they still had 443 total yards.
3: But it's they not converted like they converted one. They're not doing that on air. Washington forced. But I'm Michigan, saying is like that's just, one for ten on third whoo. down. Like Washington was playing well defensively. I mean, I wouldn't say that they they got gashed. I mean, outside ran of for seven those yards, first three quarters, see. they ran eight yards Muslims, per rush. They had 180 yards in the first quarter. I'm just saying the, yeah. the last three quarters of the game, Michigan's offense didn't do like hardly anything. I mean, I hmm. guess from the. From the start of the second quarter to halfway through the fourth quarter, I should say, they basically put the shackles on Michigan, and then at the start of the the, the first, the start in the end, Michigan dominated, and that was enough to dominate on the scoreline. Either way, Michigan, the
2: champions here, um, the SEC streak is over for a little bit. Um, we'll see what happens uh, next year, Matt Green, but Michigan. They win the national title, and uh, we'll see what happens to the Harbaugh. Um, Ryan Day need to bulk up that staff, and Quinshawn Judkins now at running back, Will Howard at quarterback. They're not messing around uh, next year in the Big Ten. But very excited to see what Alabama does, and uh, more Tennessee stuff that uh, we'll talk about uh, in the coming weeks. And then we do our off season. Man, uh, a lot of fun off season stuff that we'll get into. But
3: that's it. So, do you prefer the? Um... The the storyline of like whoever wins is winning their first championship or for and forever. Or do you prefer like the more David and Goliath, the the perennial powerhouse facing the team that's trying to break through? You know, like the Clemson facing Alabama. They haven't won a championship in thirty something years facing the gold standard. Oh, that versus, one versus versus Washington Michigan. Whoever wins, you know, it's going to be somebody's. Like I've heard people talk about this could be the year we get like the Browns and the Lions in the Super Bowl. And it's like. Mm-hmm. No, I don't want Browns and Lions. Like I want to watch the Lions play whoever the the, the Chiefs, Chiefs or something. Yeah. yeah, it's like that. That's a the better storyline. But I but, agree with um, that. But it was still it was a it was a good game as a neutral fan. Anyone, I don't. I saw people hating on the game, like like there was bad football being played at, at times. Like I, I don't know. I, I feel like people get. People get so sensitive when when it's not their team playing in the game. But um, I thought it was a great game. Um, I got some stats for you on the 10 years of the four-team playoff here. That was the sixth different champion we had in the uh, the four-team playoff era. So as much as people like to say it was the same teams winning every year, six different teams in 10 years is pretty solid. Four different times we had number one versus number two in 10 years. So I think that's six times that the BCS gets it wrong for all those pro BCS people out there. And then um, three of those times uh, in, in 10 years, uh, the, the three or the four seed won the national championship. So I think that proved that the four team playoff was a success personally. I think it ne- had needed some uh, little room for error outside of number one and number two. But I got a trivia question for you, sir. Mm-hmm. Fifteen different programs. This is this is a loaded question, but I think you can get it. Fifteen different programs made the college football playoffs, sir. Can you name them all? I'm not doing. What are you doing? Name it's them. Almost all right one
2: a.m. I am not. No, no the, you're are you're out of your right mind? Now. What you're not dropping? It's not that
3: hard. It's not that hard. You're not doing this. No. What is happening? Off the top of your head, the the listeners are losing respect for you right now. You gotta, you gotta do it off the top of your head. They understand. I won them so
2: much money this year. I predicted just about everything right. I don't even remember a bad prediction this college football season, Matt Green.
3: Like what? Come on, come on. Hit me, hit me. I'm not gonna let you get out of this. You got this. You gotta. You can get a bunch of them right off the top of your head. Hold on. How many are we talking here? Fifteen. Fifteen what? Fifteen different college football teams. I can't believe you're doing this to me. College football playoff. Uh, LSU. Boom. There it is. Oregon. There it is. USC. Oh, incorrect. Wait, did USC never make it? USC never made the playoffs. That's right. Georgia. That was my final note. Uh, Georgia, Georgia, Notre Dame,
2: Oklahoma, um, Washington, Ohio State. Michigan Texas Florida State um, I'm nodding along I'm th- how many am I at
3: um that is one two six seven eight nine that's ten
2: okay Clemson Alabama
3: twelve okay that's twelve Florida oh no Florida, they didn't do it Florida no. Did, no
2: oh auburn no it's auburn hold on tcu obviously um washington, I said washington. i'm trying to you think already said I'm... washington yeah.
3: you got two more two more um, three incorrect guesses along the way but um you know, do it pretty folks, good it's 1 a.m on a wednesday yeah night. do you it pretty got...
2: good um who am i missing here let me think
3: um you, you
2: give up here no Hold on. You you're you're putting me through this, just this nonsense at this hour. Uh hold on. I'm still thinking. Uh, your hint is
3: that these two teams share a common head coach. Oh, how about that hint?
2: Share a common head coach. This is gonna piss me off more when you want to figure <laughs> this out. Um share what conference is one
3: of them. Uh I don't know. I feel like it's gonna I feel like it'll give it away. Um I'm forgetting right now. You mean do you give it? No, up? I'm still thinking. Um They share a head coach like in our like like recent history. Like not not old stuff or anything. They share? Um A lot of schools uh share head coach with one of these. One uh, of Michigan a real, State. Hey, there it is, Michigan State. Where did he come from? Yeah, um, you're talking about Nick Saban. No, well, wow. I think you're doing the LSU the two that left. Left. That's true. He he's he's with all of those. Michigan State. Where? Antonio? There it is. Yeah. Where did he come from? Oof. Where did Mark D'Antonio come from? Um. God. Oh man, the disrespect. Where Making did, history. Oh, Cincinnati. 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 Oh there my god. You go. I
2: forgot Cincinnati. That that one. Okay. Cincinnati. So
3: fifteen and uh and eighteen guesses. Hmm. Not bad right there, sir. Um I would say the best programs. I was
2: dirty, man, doing this uh, not programs. even on the show sheet, just doing that an hour into this pod, and just be like, name the fifteen off the dome. and you it didn't have to do stuff. it. You A just lot of those were me.
3: easy answers. You like cruised your way to like nine or ten, so it's it's no, it's, it wasn't that tough. Great. I Thanks. would say the best programs that did not make the playoff in the four team era. Like you said, those three—you're in three incorrect guesses. USC, Florida, and Auburn probably up there. I would say Penn State, Tennessee, uh, Nebraska, Miami, Texas A&M. Those are the ones. Those are the kind of programs. Maybe throwing an old Miss now. Uh, those are the kind of programs that are going to benefit a lot from this uh, from this 12-team uh, format. That they're right out, right on the outside looking in. That maybe could they can make some noise in a 12-team playoff.
2: There you go. Matt
3: Green, always a pleasure, my friend.
2: And I will talk to you next week. Yes. All right. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Ons Podcast. From still the aforementioned Chase Ons coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, everything school HQ up there in
1: New York City.
2: Not Fangraph Zone john taylor the trains man we don't we call him trains taylor now jonathan trains taylor
1: no one calls me that it could it could happen no no it won't no we're just gonna leave that one out i i I will put a stop to that with remarkable force (laughs) and speed yeah like a train like a train there you go uh
2: john taylor A lot of baseball stuff to talk about on tonight's show. A lot is uh, cooking on the the hot stove a little bit here. Um, But
1: let's uh, first start off.
2: Your take graphs, take of the week for uh, the week of January 10th, sir.
1: Nick Saban for Yankees general manager. Who? Nick Saban. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I'm I'm glad you kept things topical in this program. I'm mostly just surprised that in the wake of the single most impactful piece of college news, or college football news in who knows how long to say nothing of the departure of, you know, a man whom you, I know personally loathe and wish to see sent to the moon that there's still room to talk baseball, which is, I think also funny because there is no baseball to talk about. right
2: now. Hold on. Uh, there's baseball to talk about for instance. And also we're, we're going to talk Nick Saban on the college ball show tonight, John, like okay. if Nick Saban's going to come up tonight. I'll, I'll get it out. And, Look, I respect the guy. Like he won a lot of football games. Like it's just gonna make my life better in the fall because Tennessee will not
1: be playing Nick Saban, uh, this this fall,
2: which would be nice. It'll be someone not Nick Saban. And he yeah, it'll be as good.
1: I mean, look, it'll be some guy who in three years is gonna want to jump off a bridge. So
2: it's a tough, tough follow, man. Following Nick Saban is uh oof, it's tough. Um but John Taylor. Yes. Speaking of Nick Saban, when we think of Alabama, there's a lot of Alabama and New York Yankee fans la lakers Super. cowboys there are a lot of those crossovers
1: a natural uh vent the natural overlap in the venn diagram mm-hmm.
2: which makes me ask because i was thinking about the outfield you obviously are quite familiar with the alex verdugo experience and mm-hmm. what unfolded there we'll see where trent grisham uh, ultimately winds up in this yankees outfield If he's an everyday guy just because you need the defense really bad um in this outfield Giancarlo Stan we talked about this offseason about what his future looks like in New York and then you have Juan Soto who feels like a forgotten addition this offseason I don't think people weirdly really, he doesn't it feel like he's just gotten completely overlooked hey the Yankees traded for Juan Soto who is still very much in his prime and an extremely good baseball player who could be the AL MVP next year and it wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world like he still has yeah, that I, kind I, of upside I, I, I but how does this get, all work John, do you think they will all work out together? The Yankees are going to figure out the best three. Will the, there be a lot of hodgepodge and moving around? Will somebody have to be moved? How does this Yankees outfield unfold?
1: It, it's going to be strange because you need to play Soto and Judge every day, um, or at least as, as long as their bo- as much as their bodies will allow. And some of that is going to come at DH. But part of the problem there, as we've talked about, is you have Jim Carlos at DH is kind of a, immovable object release an expect an object that is movable so long as you're as long as you're willing to pay the the freight for moving him mm. i would assume that we're gonna see to start the season verdugo in left judge in center and soto in right um which i think makes sense for a few reasons one right field i think it's probably the best place to put soto it's the smallest of the three outfield positions in yankee stadium which will be playing half his games he is not a good fielder you want to try to hide him as much as possible and i think it makes sense to put him in a place where he doesn't have that much ground to cover two of those three guys judge is far and away the best defensive outfielder. So it makes sense in that sense to put him in center Uh, three Verdugo has to go somewhere and left is really the only place left that makes sense for him. The issue, if anything, you're going to run into is a a couple of things. First of all, the Yankees right now, I mean, and granted this is, this is something that makes sense for them because you know, a a lot that got talked about with them is why don't they have more left-handed power bats? Well, Mm -hmm. now they have one of the best in the business in Soto to say nothing about Verdugo being a lefty and Trent Grisham being a lefty. The only problem with that is you have uh, four outfielders, three of whom are lefties, and the only right-hander is a guy you never want to put on the bench in the first place in Judge. So there are not really opportunities for platoon play there. I think in an ideal world, uh, the Yankees would probably have some kind of left-field platoon set up with Grisham and a right-handed hitting outfielder, but that's just not how things worked out. The other part of it is, I really struggle to see, and and maybe not, maybe struggle is too strong, but a a worry I'm sure that the Yankees have, especially after what happened last season when he injured himself running into the fence at Dodger Stadium, is can Aaron Judge hold up to a full 150 plus game grind Mm. as a full time center fielder? It's obviously the most taxing defensive position in the outfield. Um, You know, it's going to ask a lot for him range wise, it's going to ask a lot for him to, you know, be going at full burst. Uh, on a semi-regular basis again you know in, in right field there's less for him to worry about in terms of ground to cover he can play more shallow you know he doesn't have to worry so much about uh you know obviously he doesn't have to worry about ground to his left as much you know in in Yankee Stadium he's going to have to cover a fair amount of ground and not only that but he's going to be covering a fair amount of ground again with two outfielders in Verdugo and Soto bracketing him neither of whom is particularly good defensively i've already mentioned soto who routinely now uh, grades out as one of the worst outfielders in baseball. He's got an accurate arm, but that's about all he's got going for him. Range wise, he doesn't really play well in either direction. Um, you know, the the Padres uh, shuffled him out to right or out to left field, uh, and just kind of hoped he would do okay there. Verdugo is a little better. He mostly handled right field in Fenway last year, which is a tough proposition. He's got a very strong arm. Um, you know, I I, I think. Like I said, I think the question is how long will Judge hold up, and I think that's why you can also expect to see a fair amount of Grisham um, one probably against you know at least one or two times a week filling in somewhere for somebody uh, because he is a... Is there a, a path to him having to play every day just because the defense might be so bad in the outfield? I mean, it. it I think the only way that happens is first Stanton has to go because the one hmm. guy you would want to take out of the outfield in that trio is Soto. But yeah. you don't have DH of you don't have the DH spot available, so that would ha- that would be a prerequisite. Second would be, I, I can't imagine just because Grisham for as good as Grisham is defensively, and he's a very good defensive outfielder, he is a total sink offensively at this point. Yeah. He's pretty much a guy who's just going to run into one every now and again. And while that definitely can work, particularly in Yankee Stadium with his you know left-handed pole swing. I don't really know that the Yankees want to put themselves in a position where they're relying on that on a regular basis and hoping that the glove makes up for it. Um, I think more like that, I think if anything, you might see, assuming that Judge Judge and Soto both stay healthy, I think the thing you'd wonder is how long does Verdugo keep his spot if he gets off to a slow start? Grisham is, is better than he is defensively. I think there's an argument to be made that Grisham is, if nothing else, a better fit. For Yankee Stadium, because Verdugo is more of a, a ground ball, line drive type hitter, who's not really going to be able to take much advantage, or not as much advantage, I think, as people would expect from the short porch and right field. So, I think that's the only way I see Grisham getting more time. And maybe if that's the case, uh, the Yan- I don't know if the Yankees would want to move Judge to left field is the other thing. So, it, it, it's a little complicated. I think ultimately they figure it out, and the hope is just you know Judge stays healthy for a full season, and he could just be the full time center fielder. It is risky though, and I think. Probably more ideal for the Yankees than having uh, Grisham as a backup outfielder, He'd be finding some kind of right handed outfield help to platoon with Verdugo um, in order to get him his bat out of the lineup against lefties. Or if he's I'm Sandra, and
0: I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
3: You have
2: an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Struggling to get a different bat in there, but we'll see. I I think this is something that does work out, though, and I think I I still stand by my my general feeling that the Yankees are going to dump Stanton at some point or another. Although the fact that it hasn't happened yet and we're only about a month away from spring training suggests that maybe they're just going to hold on, see how things shake out for the start of the season, and then go from there.
2: Well, also, you don't want to sacrifice depth for no reason, other than it's that's a little true. uncomfortable out of the gate. Because guess I, what?
1: Injuries destroyed your
2: season last year. That so you, is true. Yeah.
1: And and I also have a hard time seeing, because given what Stanton is, which is to say a, a, you know, a, DA, a right-handed DH who can't stay healthy, it's not as if you're going to get anything back, I think, that's ultimately going to help you. Mm-hmm. I think the only reason to do it would be a salary dump, which at this point in the offseason unless the Yankees are gonna make a late run at Blake Snell or Cody Bellinger neither of whom really I think fits what they're what they're doing right now um, so maybe described Snell to
2: ESPN does, last but... week he was in the program he thinks Snell to the Yankees uh,
1: or Montgomery one of the two I, I think I could see that there. if we're rolling into like at this if this time next month neither of them has a deal in hand I think the Yankees would probably pounce if there's a if there's a bargain to be had but I don't see them being the team that wins that that sweepstakes by making the biggest off right i, I the problem with
2: to... snell is just that like he's a night a, a new age general manager's worst nightmare on free agency right because you saw the al Cy Young or the nl Cy young this past year right mm-hmm. and you're like oh the best of blake snell is one of the best pitchers in baseball but yes. then you also have to remember what happened the previous
1: what three years of blake yes. snell and you're like it's uh... not ideal it's. I mean, there, there are many issues with Snell, the control, uh, yeah. the fact he's not a particularly durable guy, although the flip side of that is the two times he's crossed 180 innings in a season in his career, he's won the Cy Young both times. So, <laughs> yeah, he's either all or nothing. The ceiling is enormous. The floor mm. is, is frightening. He's already 30 years old. You know it's going to take a minimum nine-figure deal to bring him in unless he agrees to some short, high AAV like val- either a short, high AAV contract or a longer term deal with uh, an opt out after year two or three, maybe to try to re to reestablish his market after a couple good seasons. But I I agree that most GMs probably look at him and go, I just don't want to deal with whatever the problem here is going to is, is going to, and you're just going to go to
2: the years. And I just, I think if you do four to five years of Blake Snell at 31, I mean, you'll probably get one Cy Young year, but you're probably going to get some really, really frustrating years in that too.
1: You are. And I think I would say that I would, I think I would, Find the Yankees to be a, a more logical landing place for Snell if they could move Stanton and get some of that money back. Because mm. again, you're not going to get anything for him in the market. And what the Yankees need more than anything at this point is pitching in some capacity or another, be it a frontline guy or be a depth. Stanton's not going to bring either of those two back, so. Mm um I and like like you said and I, I agree with you. you don't you don't trade a guy just for the sake of trading him unless there's a really really good reason to do it you know and it's going to happen
2: in this outfield i just feel like you have to be really careful you have to just see how it all unfolds and then it might be a natural one where guys get hurt some guys just don't... I, I just think you let this all play out but i also wonder too like the verdugo stuff like is he like is that going to just be smooth sailing for alex verdugo in new york are we sure
1: you know, it's funny when I when I saw the rumors that uh, the Yankees are the, are the top destination now for Marcus Stroman. There's a part of me is like, you really want to deal with that? You already mm-hmm. have Alex Verdugo, and you want to add Marcus Stroman and his perpetual red ass to that situation? Okay, <laughs> have fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I, I get it uh, at least with regards to Stroman. Like, I I, don't, I still find the Verdugo move confounding. I know Yankees left fielders last year produced basically nothing. They had nowhere, and with Jason Dominguez getting hurt. Uh, injuring his elbow to the point of needing Tommy John, there was no real good internal option uh, for them to fill that position. Verdugo's only got a year of team control left. Uh, I assume this is pretty much just a, you know, he's just there to fill a spot for a year. I do wonder if they would have made that move um, had the Soto trade come first. I, I almost feel like Verdugo in a sense was a really, be yeah, not great, but an insurance policy in case Soto didn't happen or in case, Uh, you know, the, if the Padres wanted to keep Grisham for whatever reason, because I I do think ultimately it would make more sense to have Grisham be the starter than Verdugo. But at the end of the day, they're both pretty much league average bats who can contribute something defensively. So I I don't know that the Yankees really lose anything going with one or over the other. Um, But like you said, I, I don't know. I don't know if Alex Verdugo is a fit in New York. I don't know if he's already seemingly punched his ticket out of town with two different organizations. Now, uh, both of whom had a lot invested in him. Neither of whom were seemingly willing to put up with what he brought. Otherwise, so. But I, I think in New York, the calculus is probably: Hey, it's just a year. You know, maybe he'll be motivated to come out of the gate strong and show people, especially in a contract year, to show people, you know, what he's capable of doing. But um, yeah, I, I think, like you said, the Yankees outfield situation: the optimal version of it is everybody's healthy. You know, too much. Not being able to find playing time for, for guys is pretty much the best problem you can have because it means everyone's healthy and everyone's producing. So, you know, I, I am just skeptical that they get that full season out of Aaron Judge, particularly with him having to play center uh, on, a, on a full-time basis.
2: we'll end it on this. Your prediction on who gets the most starts in left, who gets the most starts in
1: center, and who gets the most starts in right for the Verd- Yankees this year? Verdugo, Judge, Soto in that order. Okay. I think. Uh, and that's assuming everyone stays healthy. I think and that's a good deal. That's a. I mean, if that's what happens, Yankees are probably gonna have a really good year. I think. Yeah, I think. I mean, look, the the Yankees season re- revolves around. It used to revolve around Aaron Judge and Garrett Cole. Now it revolves around Aaron Judge, Garrett Cole and Juan Soto. So yeah, all three of those guys, full healthy seasons. Yeah, the Yankees are going to be a problem for a lot of teams.
2: Uh, we have some breaking news in the program, sir.
1: Uh, Nick Saban has unretired.
2: No, still okay. retired. But okay the cubs the cubs 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 they are in agreement per jesse rogers of espn with lefty shoda is it emanga Imanaga. Imanaga, on a four-year 53 million dollar deal
1: yes i just saw the the jesse rogers report it's four years 53 with uh some kind of option that can push it to five years Mm -hmm. 80 million dollars so do you like this for the cubs yeah, I think it's you know if you look at their depth chart pre Imanaga, um, which you can which you can always do on Fangraphs by going over to the roster resource depth charts. Which I gotta say I am I'm not even doing this for the for the for the yucks at this point. Like I genuinely mm. love roster resource and what it offers. No, it's good. Uh, We're still
2: pro Fangraphs on this project. Yeah. this podcast. We'll promote them every week.
1: Like the top of that rotation is solid with with Justin Steele. You're a little shakier with Jamison Tyon. and then beyond that, it was Kyle Hendricks, Jordan Wicks, and a. a Bunch of arms like uh, guys who may not be ready yet, and Ben Brown, Caleb Killian, Hayden Wesniewski, um, You know, maybe a bullpen arm like Keegan Thompson or Javier Assad. You saw how many issues the Cubs had with the back of the rotation last year. Obviously, they let Marcus Stroman walk. The funny thing is, I think they have replaced him in more or less someone similar in Imanaga. Um, for those who don't know, the second best Japanese pitcher available this offseason behind, obviously, Yoshinobu Yamamoto. The main difference being the Imanaga is thirty. Uh, He does not throw particularly hard, tops out around 91, 92, has some good secondary stuff, but nothing. I mean, the the stuff is nothing on the level of Yamamoto's, but there are maybe like five to ten pitchers alive who have stuff on the level of Yamamoto's. So that's obviously that's that's not an insult by any stretch. Mm -hmm. Um, And he has phenomenal control and command. uh, That's you know, you you saw him pitch a little bit during the World Baseball Classic. Uh, He looked good and he pitched particularly against Team USA. Um, He looked very good in that one. Uh, I think the concern you have with Imanaga is, is a few things. One is the age. He's already 30. You're not, you know, they're not, these aren't peak years you're going to get. This is, you know, the beginning of the back half for him. The second, is I mentioned, the velocity, 91, 92 is, I, I think usually, and I'd, I'd love to see, I'd love to read more and study more about this, but I, I kind of have the personal feeling that if you're throwing under 93 on the regular, your life, like, obviously your life is just that much harder, but I think it really sets a hard ceiling for you as kind of a mid to back rotation starter, because, you know, Obviously, if you throw 95 and you miss your location, you'll be okay more often than not. You miss you miss your location throwing 91, you're, that ball's going 450 feet. And that brings me, I think, to the biggest issue I find with Imanagas. He is a m- major fly ball pitcher, mm. uh, which worked out okay in Japan because there aren't a lot of big-time power hitters in NPB. A lot of those stadiums are rather big. Going to be more of an issue, I think, uh, against major league hitters in Wrigley Field in particular. So I would temper my expectations. I think more likely than not, uh, he's going to be something along the lines of a four ERA guy with probably about a strikeout per inning. The thing you can probably feel good about is uh, he's never had any significant health issues. So I think you can feel positive about penciling him in for 160 to 170 innings. Uh, The command and control, like I said, will be there. So you're not going to be worried if he's going to give up home runs. I think a good number of them are probably going to be solo shots, which you can always live with. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of it is obviously just going to be the adjustment period that every Japanese player has to go through, Japanese pitchers in particular, going from a six, uh, six-man rotation to a five-man rotation. Uh, the Cubs do not have the starting pitching depth in order to do a six-man rotation unless they want to give uh, innings to, like I said, Assad or Keegan Thompson, which, or if they want to maybe do you know, some kind of let's give a little bit of time to Wisniewski or Brown or Killian, but... I think, if nothing else, Imanaga is a very good mid-rotation option, a guy who gives him some depth in a rotation that really needed it. And, again, being the NL Central, you know, Yamamoto would have been the better get by far. But, you know, this is a Cubs team that looked pretty good up until the last two weeks of the season, uh, got a new manager, and Craig Council has, for the most part, kept the roster intact. Obviously, what they do to replace Cody Bellinger is is a really big question that they haven't really answered so far. But at the same time, I th- I like I like adding Imanaga. I like what he brings to that rotation, and then you can't really argue with the cost four fifty three. I mean, that's that's barely thirteen million dollars a year. When Seth Lugo and Michael Walker are pulling down $15 million, 16 million, when Lucas Giolito is getting a deal that's gonna pay him forty million dollars if he's absolute trash, you know, it, it's hard to say no to a guy like Imanaga, even if the ceiling doesn't feel that high. But you know, we never know either, because again, it's. Uh, you know, Japanese pitchers can surprise, especially you know, given how little we've seen of them here in the United States. Well, it's also just like, hey, we've been
2: wondering all off season. We're like, hey, Cubs, what you doing? What are y'all doing? Like the the NL Central is just right there. And look, I understand the Dodgers and the Braves, two juggernauts and your Diamondbacks just made the World Series. What are you doing? Like, uh, it can be done. You you have a good team. You there's no reason for you not to be operating uh, at this point in your retooling. To not be going deeper, to not be spending a lot of money, to not be uh, challenging and going for it uh, in a weak division um, where you're the favorites, uh, you should be going into next year. And look, man, thing baseball happens and just you can't be scared, especially in the market like Chicago. It's time. Like, it's time for you to go all the way in. Shota is not a big 453. It's fine, but it's worthwhile. It's good. Makes the fans happy. But it's also like Cody Bellinger should just be a cub again. Like, he was good for you. Just bring back Cody Bellinger. You're a big market team. You just bring him back. You know what you also do? Uh, You sign Reese Hoskins, who they've been linked to. You know what else you do? Um, And this was something like Foul Territory was talking about on their pod, where it's like, well, they're engaged. Like, what if they do do all that? Because that's still in play. Like, how if they end up signing Shoda here, Bellinger, mm-hmm. Hoskins, Chapman, um, not Araldus, and uh, Jordan Montgomery, I mean... That's a really, really strong offseason That's not going to break the bank, but will add a bunch of depth and quality pieces around a good young group and a team that should be right there to win ninety-ish games. Um, I don't know. I just think that's still in play. I'm very, very curious now if this is a sign of more, uh, more activity from the Cubs because there should yeah, be activity. And- the Cubs fans need to be pressuring this organization. Needs more I- activity.
1: I agree with you completely, and, and Michael Bauman wrote this for Fangraphs back at the start of the month, that you know the Cubs had slow-played the offseason so far, which if you're a Cubs fan, you probably don't love, but at the same time, as, as you just mentioned, Blake Snell's still on the market, Jordan Montgomery's still on the market, Bellinger's still on the market, Matt Chapman is still on the market, uh, Josh Hader, for uh, for whatever reason, the Cubs want to add a bullpen piece, although they got very, very good work out of Albert Alzale last year. Mm. you know there There's still room for them to make moves, and and one thing Michael mentioned in particular I think is worth noting. You know, the Dodgers have likely spent the, their last offseason dollar, at least their last yeah, major offseason done. dollar, in getting Teoscar Hernandez. The Braves the Yankees, are done, too. The Braves are done. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say the Yankees are probably done with free agency. Um, there aren't really many contenders still out there with either holes or money to spend. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Cubs, even with adding Imanaga now, depending on how things are calculated for luxury tax purposes, obviously, still have about $40 million or so dollars before they hit the first CBT threshold. So there's still plenty of room if they want to make even two major signings. And I think you're right. If if they come out of the next month or so, you know, you add Matt Chapman, because right now third base is being held down by Nick Madrigal, and I, I cannot imagine the Cubs. Feel Chapman like feels
2: that. like a definite to me. I, I'm yeah, just penciling or, him in.
1: That'd be weird if he does not end up in Chicago. Or you add Matt or you add, sorry, Reese Hoskins to displace Matt Mervis at first base. I know Hoskins is a brutal defensive first baseman, but. Um, I think there are real questions about whether Mervis can hit enough at the major league mm. level to make the, to make him uh, a viable starter, you know, add Chapman, add Hoskins, maybe get a, a one more arm in there somewhere. It doesn't have to be Snell. It doesn't have to be Montgomery. I don't really know who's left beyond that, but, Stroman. You know, uh, it, well, I, I would imagine the thing is Imanaga and Stroman are so they're basically carbon copies of one another, mm. except for the ground ball, fly ball difference that I'm pretty sure this closes. I mean, I, I think the door was already closed on Stroman returning to Chicago, yeah. but I think this pretty much eliminates it. But yeah, there's there's still room for them to do something. And again, if Blake Snell or Jordan Montgomery is still sitting there a month from now, no contract in hand, you know, who's to, what's to stop the Cubs from going to Snell and being like three years, sixty some million dollars, you know, rebuild your market. You'll you know, still be re- in
2: your early thirty, early to mid thirties when you leave and get one yeah. final payday.
1: And now you can be the now you can be at the top of this rotation that it, at that point too would feel like a genuine NL Central favorite. Yeah. Um, and it's worth noting, too, like, you know, for as much as we make fun of the NL Central, like the Cardinals, the Cubs, the Cardinals, Brewers, Reds and Cubs, I think will all be somewhere in that 84 to 88, maybe even 90 win window. So depending on what the Cubs not, do over the next month. But that's the thing that It does not take a lot. It's not going to take a lot to move you out of that group. It's, yes. It, you know, it's not like you're staring down a 95 plus win team in your division and going, well, even if we add all these guys, are we still good enough? Add mm. one of those guys, and you might already have enough to separate yourself from the pack. Add two mm. of those guys, you are probably definitively, definitively ahead of the pack because we know the Brewers aren't going to make any more big moves. It's a pretty safe bet the Cardinals aren't going to do anything more no. at this point. Uh, similarly with the Reds, they've already declared that they are done making major moves. So this, the rest of the offseason is really in the Cubs' hands as to what they want to do. You know, They can pretty easily, with just a, another couple moves, Easily set themselves up to be the favorite in the NL Central, I think, and I think Imanaga is, is a good a good start on that process. It really feels weird, by the way, to talk about a team starting its offseason in mid January. This <laughs> has been a very strange free agency period in that regard. That so much seems to have taken so long to happen, even with Otani uh, coming off the board relatively early.
2: Absolutely, uh, your old friend. Though speaking of the Cardinals, uh, they hired uh, Heim Bloom uh, this week, sir. What do you make yes, of the Cardinals did. bringing in Bloom?
1: Sure. I mean, I I, I like the I like the fact that Major League teams essentially have like a sinecure program for failed (laughs) general managers to just be advisors or assistants or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, whatever make work title they want to give them. Um, I imagine what he will do in in St. Louis is probably closer to what he was doing in Tampa Bay, which is to say probably more focused on the player development side of things, the draft side of things that I think without question was the strongest part of Heimbloom's resume in Boston. I think clearly when it comes to free agency, he does not. He did not really seem to have a very strong grasp on how to operate with that. Well, he's uh, in a good I, spot for that now. He isn't. That's the thing. He is in a good spot in St. Louis, a team that rarely bothers with free agency. Uh, that very that almost never goes after top targets. It prefers have the more best against. fans
2: in baseball that many forget.
1: <laughs> People are talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it makes sense to add him, especially given that uh, St. Louis's player development has not been the strongest of late um particularly you know you know they have a few uh, high end prospects uh tank hens uh who's the other i mean they, they moved one uh, they got one of the pitchers they got back from texas uh sorry i'm blanking on names now but either way it, it's a fine farm system but not the strongest in in the entire world obviously per fangraphs 2023 updated farm system rankings they had st louis 17th overall in baseball um Fine. I imagine again that the uh, that the goal for Bloom there is going to be uh, help. You know, come in, give us a new set of eyes there um, in an area where we need to improve. Especially because again, free agency not an area the Cardinals really do much work in. Like the the Sunny Gray contract was a real surprise in that regard. But um, I think it'll be fine for Bloom. I have a hard time seeing him getting another GM job. But stranger things have happened. And if nothing else, the Cardinals get to benefit from a guy who was integral to Tampa Bay's success. So you, you can't really, you can't uh, forget that either.
2: No. And I just, it look, I just want to know who wins the, the post red Sox bump. Is it Ben Charrington or <laughs> is it high It's something that I, I can't wait to monitor in the NL Central over the next couple of years.
1: I was going to say all the failed GMs just go to the NL central and hang
2: out <laughs> there. Yeah. Cause it's a great gig. You never get fired. You just can hang out. The expectations are low. Um, you get long term job security because it's like, hey, go rebuild the farm, and then uh, I'll check back and we'll see where you're at in six years. And hey, good luck.
1: Yeah, I, I think I mean, I look and it, it, again, it makes sense for Bloom to be doing this because what's he going to do otherwise? It's not like he's. going we'll, we'll also go... find out maybe like if he it was a Red Sox ownership issue
2: or was it Hein Bloom issue? Like we still because of everything looming over Red Sox ownership right now, Heim Bloom is an interesting test case here well we'll see what how different Breslow is over the next couple of years but I also just kind of am curious how if bloom gets real power in the St. Louis front office and maybe he eventually takes over whatever the case may be I'm just very curious to see uh those two because like it's easy to forget I mean you I mean obviously know this better than you might John like it was a big hire it was like a I mean Heimblum like it's not like the Rays have a lot of um, bombs when you leave the Rays organization here. And I think there were a lot of people who were like, oh, did they get their Andrew Friedman, like the Dodgers? And uh, now you have this smart team builder and he can find and draft these guys and uh, develop this Red Sox farm while also having the money to spend in this organization. And people thought they were going to have both when uh, yeah, when it, Bloom came in a little bit. Like there was a lot more optimism about Heimblum, um years ago now, but I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about it.
1: I mean, I'm curious too. I think what we're, what'll, I, I doubt again that he ends up in charge of a front office again, but I'm willing to bet that ever. Yeah. I i, I mm. think what, regardless of what ownership did or didn't do in Boston, and I think they're to blame for a lot of what happened, it's pretty clear that Heimblum isn't good at building a major league roster. Mm. He had four seasons in charge in Boston to, in which to show that he could do that. And three out of those four seasons, he finished in last place. Yeah. That's a tough one to shed. So, I, I would mm. be I would be genuinely really surprised if he gets another chance to do that, but I think it makes sense for him to be involved in a front office in some capacity and some, especially also in a non public facing role. Uh, I think he did not really uh, excel at that part of things either, having to deal with the press, uh, having to be kind of the the public whipping boy for a lot of the a lot of the decisions that did or didn't get made. So I think it's better for him to be safely ensconced in a uh, in St. Louis and just. Be able to focus on player development and scouting and farm system stuff. And I I think that's where his strength lies anyway. I agree. Um
2: John Taylor. This is yes. something that might piss off some Mets fans. I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Buy or sell. The Nationals could win more games than New York Mets next year. I don't think it's as crazy as some people might say. Like, they're knee-jerk thought is no
1: i mean it, it's not entirely crazy i mean how how far apart did those two teams finish in the standings last year
2: i think if you ask the average fan, baseball fan they would be like oh clearly the nationals were like 20 games worse and it's very close if the i mets remember correctly.
1: Were only four games better than the nationals last yes year. like that's that's not nothing that is a that is that is a rather insignificant amount um i would put the odds of the mets being better than the nats at like a solid i think 75 percent some of this is just the Nats roster has not improved from last year. Uh, they really have done nothing so far in, in free agency. Uh, I'm noticing
2: a trend here in baseball teams, John. Yeah. I mean,
1: it's not a good thing when your most impactful signing of the offseason is a tie between Nick Senzel and Dylan Floro. That that's mm. not really a place you want to be. Um, you know, again, this is a roster, and I think we've said it before, that is not built for 2024 and maybe not even 2025. It's it's just built for just to exist because you are legally required to field a baseball team. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, any, any positive uh, outcomes on the Nats end of things, I think are going to be more on the surprise side of things slash a guy like James Wood or Dylan Cruz or uh, Brady house, like trashing double a and making jump, which I also don't really know that the the Nats really have any impetus to move either of those guys up to the majors. So soon, you know, why, why start the clock for a team that's probably going to finish with 90 plus losses. I probably, I mean, almost certainly going to finish with ninety plus losses. Whereas the Mets, you know, I, they, I don't think they've had a particularly great offseason. They've been weirdly quiet and, and and not really done a whole lot expensive. Um, but it's a better lineup, I think, for the most part, or at least the better top half of the lineup. The Mets, the back half of the Mets lineup is really a problem, and I I, I don't really understand the lack of urgency to get another bat there. I think it's a better rotation, no question about that, even though I don't really... I don't know, I don't like betting on Jose, Luis Severino or Sean Manea, uh, and it should be a, a better bullpen overall. To say nothing out of, I expect, the Mets... The Nats are in a position where, you know, if things aren't going well, well, that was always the plan in the first place. They're not going to make mm-hmm. additions during the season to make themselves better. If anything, the expectation would be that any of their existing or, or still extant, like, veterans or, or guys getting closer to free agency... Um, maybe a, or a guy like maybe a Joey Manessi's or, if you know, if they can get anything for Victor Robles or uh, if they can get anything at all for Patrick Corbin, they'll move them and they will almost certainly become worse in the process. Whereas the Mets, unless they are fully planning on just not trying the season, I think there's a very good chance that the Mets make moves during the season because they are going to be at least, at least from the start of the season, ostensibly trying to compete. You know, maybe by the time August rolls around, if the Mets are below 500 past the deadline, you know, didn't make any moves, then it probably becomes an open question of, oh, okay, actually, are they going to finish higher than the Nationals? But I think as it stands now, I expect the Mets to be better. I think the sad thing is I don't expect the Mets to be that much better, though. Again, you look at this hmm. roster, and it feels very 500 right now. You know, with with not just 500, but also with a real high possibility if injuries hit, and there are a lot of guys here who are, you know, uh, particularly I'm looking at Starling Marte, and the great majority of that rotation, if injuries hit those guys, this is going to get ugly in a hurry. So, yeah, you know, I I, That's why I don't think,
2: like you said, I like the 75 percent where it's like 70 percent, I'm sure. But like there's a 25 percent chance where there's some injuries and. Yeah, I mean, I guess I,
1: I guess it's a good way of putting it. There's a 25 percent chance that the Mets completely fall apart. Yeah. Um, even worse than they did last year. So and again, it was only a four. It was only four games separating those two teams in the standings by the end of the year. So, and I don't think there's a path to the Mets being better than them. I
2: mean, maybe the Marlins, but
1: I, definitely I not the it. Phillies and the Braves. I could see it if there are injuries on the Marlins side, particularly pitching wise, um, yeah. especially because the Marlins, too, are a team that has done next to nothing. This off-season. Well, they hold on.
2: They also hired uh, the very handsome Gabe Kapler as assistant GM, and they also uh, made the pivot uh, to, hey, remember that team up there uh, in our same state? What if we did two of those?
1: I don't think the Marlins have signed anyone to a guaranteed major league contract this offseason.
2: Is it just like the Spider-Man meme of them and the Baltimore Orioles? Just It,
1: it, it really is taxing, to say the least, to think about how many teams have more or less sat the offseason out. Um, yeah. Especially a Marlins team that finished above 500 last year, got lucky in the process, but, you know, it, it, it's not hard to squint and see this being a contender. And instead, they just kind of were like, what about more, obviously, Sale Garcia? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't understand. I don't understand the way the Marlins do things other than they don't want to spend money, which has been their thing forever, but regardless. No, I, I I think I think the Mets should finish the season with a better record than the Nationals, but I would not... If you told me, if you traveled back in time from October 2024 and told me, hey, the Mets are going to finish with a worse record than the Nationals, I wouldn't be shocked by any stretch.
2: Yeah um final one here uh and we'll save some stuff for next week too sir um let's do robbie ray to the giants hmm tiosco hernandez to the dodgers what do you think will be uh who will end up being because part of it robbie ray i don't i don't what midsummer late summer robbie Ray is gonna be ready I to go so yeah but either way robbie ray to the giants or tiosco Tioscar Hernandez to the Dodgers. Which one do you think will be ultimately more impactful in twenty twenty four?
1: oscar for sure. I mean, the, the Dodgers. If you're looking, if you're looking at that roster post Yamamoto, I, I think the feel was there. You know, still a couple things they needed. Uh, more rotation depth is obviously ideal. I, I'm not in love with their infield situation, particularly uh, the just total trust they now seem to have in Gavin Lux as a shortstop. Yeah, to say nothing of, I don't think Will Muncy can play third base. I, I'm really, really curious to see how that works out. But, but that's I a Dodgers think, thing of like, hey, you remember that
2: thing you like doing? Guess what? We're we're going to put you here. We're going to try you here. Like, that's the one negative, I guess, maybe you could say about the Dodgers is that they have this cachet for whatever reason, where they're like, we'll put you where we want you. <laughs> we yeah. uh,
1: want to move you. So I, I think the big thing that was still missing with the departure of J.D. Martinez was a power hitting right handed bat. And I think Teoscar Hernandez fits that profile perfectly. Uh, for starters, it lets you get Chris Taylor out of a full-time starting role, which is I don't think he's suited for, and more into a utility role that I think he's better suited to play. Uh, second, it means you can decrease playing time, ideally for, Manuel, for Manny Margot, who is, I think, going to be the weak side of a platoon with Jason Hayward, but because of the fact that he's a right-hander, probably would have been in line for more playing time elsewhere. Now I feel like this lets you just keep him strictly in that platoon role and as a defensive replacement, which is what he's best at. But more important than anything, it is just having that steady right-handed power in, in the lineup in Hernandez. Um, a guy where even when everything, you know, and, and look, there are things about Teoscar Hernandez that worry me in particular that he will swing at anything, quite literally anything you throw him. Mm-hmm. Uh, at looking at his looking at his baseball savant slash stat cast, um, percentile rankings on the what used to be the the, the lollipops, and I guess now we could just they're bars. Mm-hmm. Kind of funny. Uh 13th percentile in chase rate, third percentile in whiff rate, ninth percentile in strikeout rate, 13th percentile in walk rate last year. You don't need me to tell you that's bad. I don't know that there's any fixing that. I think that just is what Teoscar Hernandez is. But for a one-year deal with a huge chunk of that deferred and when you're optimizing his placement in the lineup, which is to say left-handers and righties who do not have good uh, breaking balls or or you know because that, that has been his number one weakness by far is... Uh, spin and break, you know, sliders in particular, just murder him, Mm -hmm. bench him against righties with good sliders, put him in there in the lineup against lefties, soft tossing righties, uh, guys who only have fastballs. You're going to get a really good season out of Teoscar Hernandez. Um, So I I like that move a lot for the Dodgers. It's very nice for it. It must be really nice to have a team that can just do that kind of stuff. Ray to the Giants. I don't really see him making a significant impact this year. I think Maybe that's a guy where he pitches the last six weeks of the season and gives you a few starts, and with an eye toward maybe the postseason if the Giants can get that far. But that move, dealing Mitch Haniger and Anthony Desclafani for Ray, was more about uh, just chopping salary going forward for for Seattle mostly, but mostly just about getting out of Mitch Haniger's deal for the Giants, a deal that just had not worked out. To say nothing of a guy in Desclafani, who I think they ideally idealized or sorry, ideally viewed. As a back-of-the-rotation guy with swingman capacity, didn't really work out in that sense. Um, I I imagine for the Giants, too, there's probably that feeling of, hey, if he comes back healthy, that's a former Cy Young winner we have in the second half of the season. It's risky, and I don't think it's a particularly good sign of where the Giants are that that's the kind of bet they're making. But, you know, he could could definitely make an impact. I just don't see it being anything close to what Hernandez is going to offer to the Dodgers. I also just... Robbie
2: Ray is probably, like, a fine... Like... If he was healthy all year, I think that's like we would look at it as like it's so easy. He's another one, like the Blake Snell, where it's like this dude won a Cy Young a couple yeah. years ago. And you it's, could see it's like, not far off from Blake Snell in terms no. of the floor and the ceiling. And hey, maybe. And the Giants have a good track record of resurrecting these guys. Um, Discalfani, who uh, is out in the deal, he's had some injury issues, um, and which just not good uh, when he came back, but lately, but. We'll see what he does in Seattle, but either way, I I think both will actually end up being positives. And I think Robbie Ray, like I could see him having a good run in San Francisco for however long that is. And Oscar Hernandez just being a fine uh, pickup for the Dodgers as well.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, I think that's a good point with Ray is that he is also a 2025 and beyond move because he's still Mm. under contract for another uh, I believe this would be two seasons after this one. I, I can't remember. And it's context. crazy when you but say
2: that because I'm like 2025. Like
1: that's, uh, and then I'm like, that Oh my God, that's next literally year. next year. This is that, a fun thing to think about, isn't it? That uh, is not it uh Robbie Ray is under contract through the 2026 season. Although he can opt out after this season, which he quite obviously is not going to do. So, you know, that's, that's another, uh, I mean, granted two years and 50 million for Robbie Ray in his age, 33 and 34 seasons is, not the best use of one's money, but if nothing else, it does give the Giants some stability and future security, and knowing that he's there, uh, they could obviously also spin him off again as a, as a salary dump going forward if they want to. But you know, it, it does give them some rotation uh, depth going forward too. There you go um
2: well that's all i've got uh tonight for uh this edition of the MLB show here on the chase Mills podcast john taylor uh still some other stuff we got cooking for next week and we,
1: we have all kinds of content each and every week we'll find, I would say we're, uh, we're getting to the point where we're gonna start talking like team previews and stuff we are getting closer to that that's why again i saw a tweet today we are now closer to the start of the 2024 season than we were to the end of the 2023 world series we have crossed a very important point here people doesn't feel like it. it's supposed to snow here
2: on Tuesday. I think. Oh, that doesn't feel like baseball's around the corner, but it's not that far.
1: It is. It is. It is coming. But it'll be here before you know it. What a time to be alive, John Taylor. Always a pleasure, and I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good.
0: Why you asked me on
2: oh yeah i did ask you on for that as david it's a cold open yeah you know it's look we want to talk about the mets on this very program david roth of defector.com a very good uh i was gonna say like what kind of website it is it's just a sports blog it's but it's more than a sports blog it's It's a great blog stuff
0: on it but yeah
2: what would you say what's the tagline for defector
0: we were calling ourselves the last good website for a while, yeah. which is kind of obnoxious. We might not do that anymore, but it's like one it of those. might
2: be the last good website, though. It's like the way the sites that going.
0: used to exist, right? So it's like mm. mostly sports, some other stuff, you know, like writing about whatever weird thing is under our skin. Like today, yeah. it was like our sports quantum was pretty low on the day that you and I are talking. But we had like a hockey blog, a college basketball blog, and an NBA blog. And then we had like uh, something about how much Luis hated the movie Salt Burn
1: haven't watched uh, it yet.
0: <laughs> yeah he uh really disliked it he disliked it in yeah. a way that like kind of made me feel like i should watch it though like, hmm. I was like not that i don't trust his judgment but i was like what kind of movie would make a reasonable man this upset? Yeah. <laughs> like there has to be something there
2: well you know there uh, are so many people in the world who like would only watch movies you know there are people out there with the late roger ebert who it's like oh he hates this comedy it's gonna be yeah. a banger i'm going in this that's yep. all i needed
0: to see I think there's definitely something to that. Like it's the mm. two star review that makes you not want to read it. But like once someone gets below that and they're yeah. really mad about it, like I remember mm. that was like uh Ebert hated the movie Blue Velvet, which I I like pretty well. I don't love, but Was he, that Jake? Is that it's, Jake Gyllenhaal? Uh, David Lynch. David Lynch, early, yeah. uh so it's like Kyle McLaughlin, Lord. Or Bernie. is it
2: Ryan Go- wait Blue Velvet? What is Blue Velvet?
0: Yeah. No, I'm thinking Blue Valentine with Ryan Gosling. What yes, is that Velvet. is yeah. Blue Velvet is uh David Lynch's like big it's just like the one movie that he got to make that was super perverted that was like through a studio okay and it's got a real crazy dennis hopper performance And anyway, the ebert's review i'm sorry was this is twin
2: peaks in a blue with uh blue coloring this is yes. what i'm looking at right now
0: same sort of people same sort of vibe in the sense that it's like a 1950s thing but like a lot of really mm-hmm. awful 80s style stuff is happening in it okay but ebert's review was like i didn't like this movie <laughs> but I also feel like maybe I was just not designed to like this movie. Yeah. And I remember reading that and being like, this guy seems troubled enough by the fact that he couldn't appreciate this that I should check it out. And I'm glad I did. Like, I wouldn't yeah. uh, say it changed my life or broadened my perspective or whatever. But what the thing that people watching this right mm. now will not know is that you and I talked about movies for like 20 minutes before mm-hmm. we started doing this and now we're doing it again on the actual shit. You know uh, what it is, David?
2: You don't want to talk about the Mets finishing fourth in no, the NLEs next year. Not really. Not so yeah. much.
0: They are, uh, I I will say that I'm not as down on them as, like, I'm in a a DM with, like, 100 mentally ill Mets fans. And a lot lot of them, not 100, I don't know, 50. That's a lot. Yeah, and they're not having the best time this offseason. But I think somebody made the point, and I think that this is, like, something that all of us have sort of tried to bear in mind as a, like, a serenity prayer type, (laughs) you know, just a thing to hold on Mm -hmm. to, is that, a year of retrenchment under Steve Cohen and David Stearns, which is like what it seems like this offseason more or less is, mm-hmm. is like basically still either the same or better than what going for it looked like with the willponts Yeah. That it's the same, like not just that they're spending more, but like the decisions they're making make a little bit more sense. It's not like the year that they were kind of good. And then the one move they made was adding Michael Kadire. And they just sort of left it at that. That's you know? a name I've not heard in a long time. And I got I no Kedire. beef with Michael Kadire. He was an okay mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. Uh, there's a great video of him doing a uh, magic trick when he was with the twins and really blowing Denard Span's mind. I recommend him. Okay. People speak also that a out. former Met. Yes. Well, we know Span was not a Met. Was
2: Span never a Met? Span was, was a Nat. He was a Nat, but I thought he was also. Hold on. I don't. I think, De- All right. I
0: think Denard Span was a Met, David. I would. Don't think that the Nards fan was a met. I would have loved to have had him as a met. He was a type of guy that I always got mad that other teams had. Oh, uh, Giants, like Rays, guy. and Mariners. Yep. Mm. Yep. Good career. Thought too. he was a met, but he was like a guy that would always hit like 290 and mm. take a lot of walks. Yeah. And the Mets were never uh, like a useful sort of guy that was often on good teams. And the Mets were sort of like, no, we're going to go another way with this one. We're going to yeah. find it. We like different types of guys than that. They, <laughs> So the the dudes that they've added this different types of guys, it's very like one year contract type moves, but Mm -hmm. I don't think they really screwed any of them up. The thing that's funny is that they are like the third and maybe fourth best team in their division, and they're going to be paying the maximum luxury tax allowable under law in the league next year for that privilege like for all of the moves that they made at the end of last year to like sort of delay our salary and like buy prospects, which they basically was what they were doing with the Scherzer deal and the Verlander deal. They still are like, they're taking a cap hit from those guys. Mm. And then there's still so much extra stuff just hanging around, you know, that like no one knows if like Starling Marte is going to be healthy enough to play baseball ever again. Like they're paying him $20 Mm. million each of the next two years, you know, like it's just, how it's gonna be, but <laughs> that's the, the Mets off season. It's how it's gonna be. It's how it's gonna be. It is what right it now. is. Yeah, it's yeah. like all the things that like Tony Soprano says when he's upset. <laughs> that's basically what the Mets DM looks like most of the time now, minus the heavy nasal breathing. But do you so- think
2: they're punting on twenty twenty four, or do you think that they're still? I mean, the Francisco on the door still. There's still a lot of town. They didn't trade Pete Alonzo. Yeah. Um. Obviously, the rotation's completely different than uh, they their older older rotation that they yeah. trotted out last year historically old that did not pay off yeah uh, for the Mets but I mean are, <laughs> both those guys comp-
0: pitched great for the other teams they wound yes, up yes they did but yes it did not did not work out for the Mets
2: but it was like a store I forgot who it was who had maybe it was Sarah Langs of lmb.com but like it was I think it was the oldest rotation starting rotation um, on any oh, opening yeah. day ever I want to say yeah like combined. It was bonkers. Um, I mean, it was Scherzer was yeah.
0: thirty nine, Verlander mm. was 40, forty, yeah, or forty one, and then yeah, it was like and then it's like Jose Quintana, Cody yeah. yes. So the last two guys are still there. To mm. answer your question, I don't know that they're punting on it exactly. I think that they're not like going for it, going for it in the sense that they weren't. As far as I could tell, I think they were in the mix for Yamamoto who wound up signing with the Dodgers Mm. they were never in play for Otani I guess he just doesn't want to play on the East Coast and yeah (laughs) unless it's Toronto
2: or whatever which Yamamoto a group group of Dodgers fan I want to say right yeah yeah, and
0: like and whatever I mean if I were him if I were anybody like why wouldn't you go play for the Dodgers like Mm -hmm. it's great like Los Angeles it's stupid that we don't all live in Los Angeles (laughs) a lot of other parts of the country are nice but Mm -hmm. it is like it's kind of you know give or take the traffic's not great man traffic's not great I just there's no way yeah. yeah. And I mean, whatever, I grew up in New Jersey. It's like people that have had bad car experiences, like mm-hmm. I can look past that if like the tacos are sufficiently good and they are sufficiently good. They're excellent. Yeah. There you but, go. But yeah, but I get like with that decision making. After the Mets like did not do that. I haven't gotten the sense that they're in on like Blake Snell or any of the other yeah. sort of like and I'm okay with that. I mean, I feel like the the promise that that Cohen had with the team, the idea always, was that they were going to be something like the Dodgers East, right? Yeah. And he came in, and he said publicly, he's like, we're going to have to spend big for a few years while we build this bridge, like the Dodgers have, where they're constantly producing new young players to sort of fill in behind the vets. Mm. And good teams all do that. I mean, the Braves are like probably the utmost example of that, because none of those guys ever leave. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. I mean, that's like the next level of this. And I, until the Mets or any other team can figure out what it is that makes Ozzie Albi sign a contract like the contract yeah. that Ozzie Albi signed, the Braves will always have an advantage. Yeah. But in that case, it was the Mets. When he took over, Farm System stunk. Mm. Uh, big League team also stunk. They spent money on the Big League team. They kept some of the younger guys that were, you know, like the few player development wins that they had. So that's Alonzo and Jeff McNeil. Mm. basically and brandon nimmo i guess but that's like the entirety of it yeah and so most of what the the idea was that spending on short-term deals like verlander and scherzer would be the sort of thing that keeps them competitive while the pressure from below builds the problem was they didn't fix the farm system at all there was no talent in it and so when they those deals that they made at the end of last year which the GM who made them, Billy Epler, isn't there anymore. I think mm. generally he did very, very well in those. That like they added real prospects. They have multiple guys that are going to be not just in the top 100, but in the top 50 in most of those good prospect rankings. And that was for sure not the case before that they had graduated. I think the only guy that really was considered a big prospect in Francisco Alvarez. Mm. And then the rest of it is just like they tend to develop the same types of guys over and over again. So it's like a third baseman who loves to hit ground balls or something. And it's just like, it's not that useful, you know, like.
2: David Wright's just always in the farm system, just doing a tour to make sure that, that yeah. they understand what
0: the it's assignment like, is. You swinging down, down on the ball. But they didn't, they didn't understand a lot of stuff. There was a story that I remember, like, I've told this a number of times. I wasn't actually there for it, but Sandy Alderson talking mm. back in the day when he was the GM about how the team was like beginning to understand You know, like not even like advanced metrics, like things Mm -hmm. that you and I as like, I don't know how good you are at math. I am not so that like things that, you know, average sports loving knucklehead Americans can get launch angle, for instance, Mm -hmm. in this case, there's like launch angle and there's exit velocity, very basic sorts of stats. Mm -hmm. You see them in like TV broadcasts. Now, when Alderson was the GM, the team was like just beginning to become aware of these. That's like five years ago. Mm. And at the time they thought that they had discovered in their own farm system, like a hidden gem, Uh, a guy's name was Eric Campbell. He had Mm. like a big league career, but not a great big league career. And they noticed that he hit the ball very, very hard, like Mm. on balance, which is a good thing. It's just that they didn't notice and they were, you know, like they were excited, they're talking him up and he's going through the minors and he's hitting, you know, like maybe like an empty 300. Because he did not ever hit the ball in the air. He was hitting sizzling 108-mile-an-hour ground balls. And sometimes they got fielded and sometimes they didn't. But they, at the time, they were, like, frustrated because they didn't understand why this wasn't working. He was hitting the ball so hard. Which is basically, like, that's a caveman, like, hitting a rock with another rock. You know? Like, that is not, like, a feasible organizational... It's not. I mean, it's not anything like an organizational philosophy. It's just, like, people in the baseball side of things that don't understand baseball. And I think that at this point, they've now more or less turned it over. I don't know that the player development is better, but the people making the decisions seem to be making more informed decisions. And so all of these like little corny nibbling moves that they're making, they're not exciting to me. Like I'm not like pumped to see like Harrison Bader and Luis Severino on one year deals, but I understand why they took chances on those guys. And Mm. I think that you, they could explain why even if it's just, that like Severino's pitch quality was better than his results last year and a defense up the middle is important and blah blah blah. That's like more than they were able to say for like most of the time that I've been cheering for the team. Like when the Wilpons were in charge, it was just like we want winners or whatever. And they didn't know what the fuck that was. They didn't like it wasn't something that they'd paid attention to. It was, it was just, the one who wore know. the Ed Hardy shirts. Which Wilpon was that?
2: Oh in the uh, office. that
0: sounds like Jeff.
2: Well I think do you remember that story? That was, like, one of those weird anecdotes that just resonated with me And they were talking about The Office and, said, like, I'm pretty... It was one of the Wilpons came into The Office with an Ed Hardy uh, yeah. t-shirt. this uh, uh, There were button-ups, I think, but there were the short-sleeve button-ups, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, like a bull. He was dressed like Guy Fieri, basically. Yes. You're describing. All right, that's not good. I gotta good. figure I don't out. Think I gotta find this story that. from so many years ago. Um, yeah, they, so the Wilpon front-office yeah. culture was so deranged. They had... So It was especially because, like, Jeff was a guy, he was like the heir apparent. And the reason that Fred Wilpon wound up selling the team was that basically the all the minority owners' kids, all the heirs to the Mets were like, we cannot work with this guy. Like, we mm. can't be in the office with the Ed Hardy bowling shirt guy because he's too weird and he's too nasty. And that was like more or less what spurred, I mean, it's not like Steve Cohen's anybody's idea of like a fun guy to hang out with, but like he at least is good at business things. Mm-hmm. the willpons I like never quite figured out what the strong suit was there for any of those guys
2: yeah it's also weird that knowing that uh he might hear this and cohen might just slide in your dms and be like david what do you what's think? up <laughs> yeah he's a
0: <laughs> i feel he's like very he's very online he's super online he's been posting less i think mm-hmm. uh just because i th- i think a lot of people you know it's just like twitter is not as fun as no was twitter
2: was. is just dead like they're yeah, like the... a bad feeling. shout out to the people i guess still posting through it but it's not the same. Just yeah, not, I mean Crang T Nelson keep posting because those are always funny, and I yeah, like, like, like checking that every night before I go to sleep. But
0: outside of that, like, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I support anybody that wants to like go down with the ship, fight to the last man, yeah. whatever. I bailed on it, man. It's just if it's not fun for me, no. I don't need it for work. That's the other thing that's weird about it. Yeah. It's like a big part of my, you know, like identity. I know probably for you as well that it's like you know people like wanted to see our posts, they read the stuff, mm-hmm. they watched old videos and all that. It also, like, never really added up to very much. No. But, like, people would retweet shit and not read the story or whatever. It's mm-hmm. then turn into traffic. Like, so at some point, I had to wonder what it was about for me. But, yeah, one of the good reasons to hang out there is that possibly Steve Cohen would be like, you, you and me need to meet for hot dogs. And then I have to like go. <laughs> that would be such a great blog. I would love to leave it, read a David Roth blog on his lunch with Steve Cohen. Yeah. Do you know, can I, before we go, I know I'm going over time here. No, you're good, do you know that I told you or maybe I feel like we talked about this with Bob Silverman one time. Do you know mm. the like Steve Cohen Guy Fieri overlap story.
3: Mm-mm.
0: Right. So Cohen. This is maybe the most human esque thing about him uh-huh. Uh is a, a huge fan of Triple D. It's a big uh, diners drive-ins and dives okay. guy. And he appeared in an episode in the background of like one where like a uh, guy was at some Texas Wieners place in Bridgeport, Connecticut or whatever mm-hmm. that Cohen had recommended to him. It later came out that Cohen had paid Fietti like a hundred thousand dollars to just hang out with him all day to like bring the Camaro drive around Connecticut and just go to places that mm-hmm. Cohen liked and he wanted the experience. It's like the way that like if you had an infinite amount of money, if yeah. you're like, I think I want to shoot baskets with like LeBron. Yeah. And then you like approach his people and they're like, sure, for $200,000, he'll play basketball with you for an hour. Okay, all right. That's basically what Steve Cohen did. But with the triple D guy with the rings and the goatee and the frosted tips. Yeah, because he wanted to like show him all his favorite spots in Connecticut. That's funny. And I've read a lot of bad stuff about Steve Cohen. Like he's done a lot of bad things. But bearing all that in mind, I'm kind of like, well, how bad could he be? Right? Because like, he's <laughs> he's if he's watching the same thing on TV that I'm watching off the low dose edibles on like mm-hmm. a later Friday night, then like maybe we're more alike than we are unalike.
2: This is such a great blog. It, it needs to happen. No,
0: I need to, I would love to just get together with him. He's, he's like available, but not available like that. Yeah. Like he'll, which I think is probably the right way for an owner to be. Anytime an owner's like too public, mm. you're on that like the Jim ursay clock is ticking until like something really bad happens. Yeah, you're just you, know, you,
2: you never want to be worried about the just how online your owner is yes. or how just it, it's like, I mean, to it's like the Trump thing where it's like, the, you know, they're watching the news all day long. You yeah. know that they are what they're up in the right. first thing in the morning. They're watching first take like you don't That's want your owner to just yeah, start his day every day like that.
0: Yeah, it seems like the, I guess like Cuban more or less survived it, but he's also got he's like a weird high motor guy. I think he like yeah. answers every email he gets. He's like one of those dudes. And so, well, that... hold on. I'm also so. I look. I don't like seeing. I, I have people like my wife is one of
2: them. It's like 800 unanswered emails and see oh, like the red there on that little extension box. There's no way. I guess how many right now? Zero. Are, can't seriously? handle it. Zero. That
0: first of all, all right. So I respect that a lot. Also, it's incredibly perverted to me. Like I can't, <laughs> <laughs> like really can't relate in the least. It's but it, I'm it gives me so much anxiety
2: to see that red, like 17. Uh, for email. Right. I can't I, do it.
0: The way yeah. I know this is that I emailed Cuban for a comment once on a story mm-hmm. and I was like, there's no way he's going to get back to me, but like, I'm doing the job, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you got to email him and it was like, it, it was five minutes. It wasn't a long <laughs> response, but it was something he saw, read the email and was like, okay, and mm-hmm. just like sent me a few sentences that I could use. It was about the, um, remember when the NBA had the new basketballs? No. Everybody was mad because they, so they only had them for like, it was, uh, gosh, maybe 2008 or nine. Mm-hmm. I'd have to check. They introduced new balls. It was like a different, uh, substance. It wasn't like all leather. The players instantly got mad. Steve Nash was like, it cuts my hands up. Um, and the league, they eventually wound up pulling them as like one of the few instances of David Stern admitting that he was wrong and stopping doing something. Mm mm-hmm. But it was uh, the thing I mean, because Cuban was complaining about at the time was like, nobody told us about this. <laughs> they just like rolled these out for a game mm-hmm. and the players instantly got mad and I asked him about it and he was like, you know, I don't know what the fuck Mark Cuban is doing with his life. He should not. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this. Sorry. Okay. I don't know what he's uh, doing with his life that he's like able to take a minute to answer a vice sports guys email. Mm-hmm. But I'll always appreciate that. Absolutely. we'll end on one final Mets thing here yeah. uh, before we go. Give me
2: one Mets trade you would like to see them or signing that's realistic that you would like them to do this offseason that make you happy that they have because they haven't really done anything. Yeah. I mean, they've done a lot of like nibbling here and there. Uh, So no one nibbles like the San Francisco Giants, though. They've been nibbling the last couple of years. There's so
0: there's always a team. The Red Sox have done a lot of this, too, where they're on that kind of like we were actually also in on that guy. Yes. The Mets used to be the kings of that. And now Mm. with Cohen, it's like if they are after a guy, they'll generally get him. And if not, then, you know, for the most part, they're just sort of like, yeah, well, Shohei Otani didn't want to play in New York. Yeah, there's
2: only so much. We can't force these guys to actually play
0: here, which is like the thing that owners were afraid that Cohen was so rich that like he could somehow actually make them do it. Yeah, it turns out that like a lot of baseball guys don't want to live in New York and, you know, whatever. I've lived here for 22 years. I completely get it. (laughs) Like It's not for everybody. Uh, So. All right. In terms of moves that they could make, there's like the ones that I've seen them like rumored to be a part of, which is like they sign Justin Turner or like Mm. they try something with Matt Chapman or whatever. Uh, None of that really like moves the needle for me that much. I don't know if this is cheating. I would like to see them uh, commit to Pete Alonso and like make that deal happen. I think that that's probably given the representation that he has and given the way that the team has approached it, that's probably not going to happen until either like until he becomes a free agent or until just before I just feel like right now. So the way that they're set up as much money as they're paying this year at the end of this year, and then especially at the end of next year, it's basically no commitments at all. Uh, It's like Lindor, McNeil, um, Senga, and like, uh, and Edwin Diaz. So not really very much else. And then, you know, the guys that are pre arbitration or entering arbitration. I think that as bad as they were last year, they were bad because basically everyone in their core underperformed. Mm. That's something that I think can be fixed with adequate coaching and player operations processes, which they didn't have, but which, you know, are gettable. Any team can do it. Like the giants cheap as they are and all this other stuff are really good at like coaching players and making them better. If the Mets can do that. I think that like Alonzo is the guy that was closest to being acceptably good last year. He's been really good for them. It's not necessarily a profile that ages that well. He's a little older, whatever. There's all these reasons why they think they might be able to get some sort of deal. I would just like to see them do something that shows that they have some commitment to the core group of players. And then from there, like we can begin talking about whatever is next. I feel like the uncertainty with him has been, Distracting. It's been annoying for the fans. And like, it's not going to be a great year this year. I don't think they're going to win 70 games, but I don't think they're going to win 90. And I, no. don't gonna, I don't know that they're going to, I don't know that they're going to be in the wild card mix. I mean, unless cool. everything goes right. It's like classic, like, um I mean, like no one, one thought the Dymex
2: were in the wild card mix. It's just, you don't really yeah. have to be. You can just hover around those 80 ish wins and
0: you're going to be yep. in the mix. Exactly. And I think that's where, if you look at the roster, for me right now, the roster is like, if you told me they would win eighty-two games, I wouldn't be surprised. If you told me they win seventy-eight, sure. But mm. if they they could also win eighty-eight, you know, like yeah. it's a question of like if everybody performs. The problem last year was that like they depend on Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil, like all those guys. Were all, Nimmo was also there for a longer commitment to be good and to be available, and they weren't. Mm. And if that's the case, then like there isn't another guy for that spot. That's the guy they chose for it, and. So, I mean, I would love... I mean, this is the thing that's, like... I'm at this level of being an annoying Mets fan that it's, like, hard to... Like, the real thing I want is for them to get their coaching squared away, to get their player operation squared away. So, like, I haven't even thought about, like, what if they sign Blake Snell? That'd be sick. I'd be fine with that. I mean, I don't think I'd get frustrated watching him throw 90 pitches through five innings or whatever, but, like, I'm better than watching whatever Adrian Hauser or Joey Lucchese do it. Yeah. I just... I don't know. I mean, I feel like... because they're in this in-between year and because also I've been acculturated uh and made used to like not asking for too much for them, I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like just give me some garbage I can eat. <laughs> like anything anything palatable, I'll take it. Give me some garbage.
2: Um, I was gonna tie that in and just do a whole bit, but you know, you know, like give me some garbage, give me some Ray Ratto pieces, cause he he did the other night, he did like three blogs in a row.
0: He's a monster, man, and he's, it was just
2: he cracks me up. I, I tell people, and they like, he's. I still think he's probably my favorite writer, sports writer, because he so always he was, makes me laugh. Um, he's
0: just so good. He and I, he'll do it in like six hundred words, and it's just a great one. And I'm like, great column, great job, Ray. He's the best in the world at that thing that he does, yeah. and I think also so I remember early days when I was working on stuff, I did like a, a morning roundup blog and I would just, this was like the Google reader, Google news days. Mm-hmm. And so I would just go in the morning and like look and see who had written what about whatever happened in sports the night before. Mm-hmm. And you like write a little column with quotes from it. And his stuff was so consistently a cut above everybody else's funnier, yeah. more astute and more direct that like I wrote him an email. He wrote back to me and was nice. I was, you know, like, in my twenties it was like sort of just basically a fan mail thing mm-hmm. uh i had i didn't know at the time that his whole public persona was like being really mean to everybody he's mm-hmm. like he's a sweetheart he's a really yeah. nice man and he is in the, especially like you said like the volume thing he just he writes and files it's always like exactly 800 words yes like he does not mess around the way that like sometimes i'll take he's the old school journalist something. where it's like he knows yeah.
2: he's thinking like i have 800 words to work with yeah, to it's fit column in inches print. man yeah.
0: it's just like that much space how mm-hmm. many words go in that and whatever he's a beast with it the thing yeah. with him that's you know and we've talked about this you know i talked to him on the phone every now and then just because you know as an editor he's a writer like and he's always like, concerned he's like am i writing too much am i doing mm-hmm. like by sucking the air out of the room and i think that you know metabolically you'd think that the kids the, the younger writers that we have that are like online or whatever would be more on that like rapid response thing mm. he's just got more. he's got a higher motor and he's able to turn stuff around faster than anybody else he's like, got that dog in him yeah he's got the dog in him he's had it for a real long time if you've ever actually seen what his actual dog looks like it's a really funny uh, idea the image of that showing does up he have a dog tray. yes he has a tiny fluffy little white dog that's had a bunch of health problems a lot of times when I'm talking to him on the phone, he'll be taking the dog for a walk. And so like, we'll be talking and then he'll be like, Oh, blow it out your ear. Cause like the dog <laughs> is stopping or whatever. <laughs> He's that the best guy happy. there is. I love him. I'm I glad that you're that... a fan as well.
2: Oh yeah. No Ray's The best. Um, also David Ross, the best Drew McGarry's the best. And everybody over there at defector.com, a very good sports website, the last good one that everyone should go subscribe to. If they are not already defector.com James. subscribe today.
0: That's yeah, so nice. Support
2: Appreciate good blogs. Yeah, and after Thanks this, David and I like he's gonna fund uh, Sports on Earth part two. Uh, yeah, We're bringing it back. Very strong. There you go, David hey, Roth, Thank it. you as always, and I'll talk to you again soon.
0: Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah.